Hey, 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 everyone. Welcome to episode three of season two of How's That Day? A Culture Rundown with Tom and Phil. I'm Phil Wiedenheft, and I'm here to introduce you to my co-host. And my God, ladies and gentlemen, where do I begin with my co-host? He is, he's, he's cooler than Tommy Bahama. He is, he's more hip than Tommy Hilfiger. He has a thicker mustache than Tom Selleck. He has a bigger dick than Tom Cruise and a bigger heart than Thomas Jefferson. He is the greatest Tom of them all. He is my co-host, Tom Bond. Each week, Tom and I get together to chat about how our days have been going, and together we work through our thoughts on what's going on in pop culture. I'll start this week with the same question I ask him every goddamn week. Tom, how is that day? Wow. <laughs> Did you like that? <laughs> oh my god, you brought the heat. Yeah. A bigger dick than Tom Cruise. Is Tom Cruise uh, famously packing? Uh, I don't know. I just I just know you do. You were just you were just rolling with it. I just know you did. Did, did you you listen to Doughboys, right? Did you hear the one today? I did. Yes. Did, did you the Leonardo DiCaprio detail about the ear? Uh, remind me of the detail. Apparently, it's like confirmed rumor that when Leonardo DiCaprio has sex with girls, he wears uh, oh he wears noise canceling yes. earphones. Yes, <laughs> that's so weird. Because he just knows they're going to scream so loudly with pleasure. Or I think he, he like has. I think he has music, and he just wants to like stay in the zone. I I think. Uh, Maybe I don't know. <laughs> he doesn't care. He's Leonardo DiCaprio. Yeah, I, I was picturing like he was wearing. He was actually wearing earplugs. It could be either not headphones. Or. They yeah. said, yeah, they said noise canceling. I mean, yeah, I guess he's like, I have sensitive ears. I don't want them to scream in them. I don't know. That's weird. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, uh, yeah, anyway. I, I I do remember hearing that. Now that was very funny. Uh, Doughboys is a very funny comedy podcast where two comedians review chain restaurants, and it was a a blending of fill in my podcast worlds. Yeah. I'm a big Doughboys fan and have been for years, and the guests. This week were the blank check guys. Um, Those two, are my boys. Yeah, yeah. Two film lovers uh, have a podcast called Blank Check that Phil diligently follows, and it actually influences a lot of your watching habits. Isn't that right? I watched Happy Feet less than an hour ago because of that podcast. Because they're currently going through George Miller's filmography of Mad Max and Babe fame. Yes, the man who direct. A lot of people don't realize that the man who directed the Mad Max movies is also behind uh, the Happy Feet and Babe films. Um, so he's he's got a crazy career, uh, along with, of course, the Witches of Eastwick. So it's just it's been a strange few weeks. Uh, they're moving on to Nora Ephron after that, and so I will be re- nice. I will be revisiting such classics as Sleepless in Seattle. Uh, You've got Mail, which we talked about on a, a past episode. We did um, Mix Nuts, Michael. Uh, lucky numbers, Michael bewitched with Will Ferrell and Nicole Kidman. It's going to be a ride for a few weeks with her, uh, her filmography. And of course her, her final film, Julia and Julia. Yeah. She's up and down, but every, uh, I gotta say you, you were going through George Miller's films. And in my opinion, you didn't name a bad movie. No, no. The one I hadn't seen was Lorenzo's oil. And even that was a hell of a movie. That was a crazy movie. Yeah. But like every Mad Max. Great. Both uh, babes. No, I don't great. know. That, not every Mad Max is great. I, I beg to differ. Well, Beyond, Beyond Thunderdome is cheesy, but it's a fun watch. Uh, I, not the you. Ca- you cannot say you were bored watching. Beyond oh yes, I yes I can. Uh, because here's the thing: you might not remember the first forty-five minutes of Beyond Thunderdome are fucking awesome, and the last twenty minutes of Beyond Thunderdome are fucking awesome. But in the middle of that is this 
garbage movie, garbage movie with him, like finding the children and living with the child civilization and like them thinking he's like a God from sent from above and stuff. It gets really bad for like a really long stretch. Don't get me wrong. Like there's fun stuff in the movie, but like everything you're thinking of that movie is probably in the first 45 minutes and last 20 minutes uh, the, in the middle. But of you that. just said over an hour of that movie is awesome. That's a lot of awesome. But like, okay, so two hours of the movie, an hour of it is awesome. The other hour sucks. Like, really bad. And I also, rewatching the original Mad Max, that movie's quite slow. Uh, it takes quite a long time for him to get mad. And uh, it, it's fun, but it's also, it's quite dated. I think most of the iconography that everyone associates with the series comes from Road Warrior, for the most part. Yeah, but Mad Max, the the original Mad Max, has a, a DIY low-budget charm that I really like as well. Yeah, it uh, it yeah. may take him a while to get mad, but he's always Max, and you got to appreciate that. Yeah, I just, uh, yeah, rewatching, I was like, ah, this one, like, it just, it doesn't feel, I also, like, forgot, it had been so many, I hadn't seen it since high school, I forgot how much of it takes place in, like, the real world, like, there's still schools and police departments, yeah. and, like, yeah. it's not the world is obliterated yet, and I'd kind of forgotten that that hadn't happened yet, and, like, the Road Warriors just, like, completely in the wastelands and shit, so, yeah, it just kind of threw me off. And I was like, oh, yeah, this is much smaller and kind of, like you said, lo-fi than I remembered it. But And the pacing is yeah. pre- pretty slow. But, the, yeah, there's some great car crashes and some uh, the early nuggets of some I- iconic imagery. So, yeah, it's, it's not. I never, found the, I never found the pacing very slow. It's de- I, th- I thought it was deliberate for sure, but not slow. But we're not here to talk about yeah. the Mad Max movies. No, no, and no. Yeah. Phil, I'm doing well to answer your question from four and a half minutes ago. Um, that's yeah, good. Had a, had a good day. You know, we're still in the middle of the coronavirus lockdown. We're both in Los Angeles, as listeners of the podcast know. Tomorrow is will be Friday, May eighth, at the time we're recording this, which will begin the first easing of some restrictions on the shutdown. Certain uh, businesses that have been closed since March will be opening for curbside phone and online orders uh like toy stores bookstores i assume that means uh sporting goods stores as well so i guess like barnes and noble sports authority places like that are gonna open up yeah like Um, curbside pickup and i know that's become uh, a lot of online orders and stuff like that is probably going to be where most of them are leaning on but i don't know like our haircut place is going to do like two customers at a time or something like that well, those place those places are not open in LA, nor will they be tomorrow. No, I just I guess I mean like is that the next step? I I don't know. I didn't look at the full breakdown. It is what the next step that like hair salons will will do haircuts on the sidewalk. Uh, yeah, I don't know something like that. Um, <laughs> no, that that will not be the next step. I think of, I think eventually when I mean Tom, you know, I need a haircut. Stuff, God damn it. They're they're already open in certain states, and from what I've from what I've gathered, you know the employees wear masks and gloves, and the uh, customers just sit there and say, "Cut my hair. I don't care if I'm sick, but I need a haircut." And that's that's what it's been looking like, uh, at least from photos I've seen online. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm thankfully you know I can gr- grow it out anyway, but you know. It's definitely it definitely needs some shaping. I look a little scraggly Just these days. I'm okay with it. Shave though. your shave your head or have uh, your your wife cut your hair. Give it a little trim. 
I know I've, I've given myself some little trims. I don't, I don't trust her. Um, <laughs> no, no. Is she, would, is she willing to? Oh, she's eager. Yeah. Eager and willing. It's more of a like, e- you're, you're fine. Calm down. I'm fine. I'm growing it out. I'm, I'll just have a little mullet for a little while. It's okay. Yeah. I normally have someone cut my hair, um, but because of the pandemic, it hasn't happened. So my hair is also growing and growing and growing. And I have, uh, I am now able to do the like dramatic hair flip when I get out of the shower and it's wet. Cause you know, I have very curly hair, so I don't have long straight hair that just falls down. I, I kind of blow outward in an Afro. Um, <laughs> but when it's night, when it's nice and wet, I can do like the, put my head down and whip my hair back and forth. I can whip my hair back and forth. Well, good. Be like one of the Smith kids with that hair. Exactly. Um, uh, yeah, I have nice, uh, silky smooth, long hair. I don't know. I can't complain. I have, I have decent hair. You do. You have a good, we, we both have a good head of hair. Uh, speaking of that, Will Smith kid song, uh, still in my opinion, one of the greatest bits Jimmy Fallon ever did was pretending to be, Neil Young doing a Neil Young version of that Whip My Hair song on his Tonight Show and Bruce Springsteen coming on as a guest and singing it with him. Yeah, that was when it was... Whip my hair back and forth. Whip your hair. Great. That that was the early days of Jimmy when people were like, oh, this is cute. And then like a year later, people were like, all right, let's, let's knock it off. Let's stop these games, Jimmy. Phil, how's that day? My day is uh, the same as it's been. <laughs> Generally, you know, it's it's a pretty uh, it's Groundhog's Day over here. I, I wrote, I took my dog on a walk, I watched some movies, and uh, I watched yeah, I watched the play that we're uh, Frankenstein. We're, we'll talk about that here in a minute. Uh, we will. I took my dog on a walk. I went to Staples to print out our absentee ballot request forms because uh, we don't have a printer. And uh, so to send those requests off so I can vote in November um, safely by mail. And yeah, that was my day. Now I'm, I'm sitting here talking to you after after eating some dinner. I, I had a nice steak dinner and made my... So sorry, sorry to interrupt. This ballot request was for the general election in November. Yes. Have the, what, what ended up happening with the Ohio primaries in the midst of this coronavirus... Pandemic. I've, I, you know, at first I was very attentive to what's what was going on every day, and you know, for my mental health, I've been as removed from the the news on a daily basis the past couple of weeks as I have been more than I have been over the past many years. So I I, I know you know many states uh, delayed their primaries, uh, their their Democratic primary elections what did ohio end up doing uh they moved theirs to june i i want to say june 2nd i want to uh but you're obviously vote i mean you're still since you just moved um i already sent in my absentee ballot you already sent yours in yeah for the for the primary and so this is for our general that we are getting that i was taking care of today uh, I have okay. no. I assume that those have just been filed and are on hold somewhere, ra- waiting to be counted. I really don't know, but um, right, because eventually they will have to still do a primary. I assume, even though it's a foregone conclusion that Biden will be the nominee. True, um, yeah. but you know, I, I guess like any anywhere, you would want your voice to still be heard and exercise your democratic right. 
as a voting citizen. So hopefully they will get to do that. But that's cool, man. You went back. Phil used to work at Staples way back in the day. How did it feel to go back? Uh, it's it's always I live right down the street from one so it's it's just convenient and happens to be a coincidence but it's always kind of weird when i walk in there because the layout of the stores are generally the same and i kind of walk around like yeah i still know where everything's at in this store and i know where to look for stuff and it's you know it's it's always like a reminder because i did spend like five years of my life as a manager there and actually one of the things i did today i had to take a laptop apart to get the hard drive out and shell was like thoroughly impressed that i knew how to do this and she just does not it's one of those things in my life she was not around for me being like a computer technician so it's when i tell her like i used to fix computers for a living she's like sure i guess uh, but so it's weird for her when she actually sees me take a computer apart she's like oh you actually know how to do that that's weird i'm like yeah i have skills that you don't know about she gets all turned on. Nothing sexier than a man who can take apart a computer. Yeah, yeah. Um, speaking of turned on, she completed, I don't know if I should be uh, spilling the beans, but she completed her first novel this week. Um, she wrote a romance novel. She wrote the first draft. Um, Whoa! Congratulations to Shell. That's amazing. I know. Um, she's very, uh, she's editing now. I've been trying to give writing advice. It's a romance novel, and we've had some interesting discussions about the genre and like expectations of the genre um, because I'm such a fucking snob and I'm kind of like, those are silly. And she's like, no, 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 you're, you're thinking too hard about this. And uh, yeah, so we've had some interesting discussions about that, but I'm very proud of her. She's uh, been working very hard. I, I come out of the bedroom in the morning and she's usually typing away uh, before she kind of does her work for the day. And she kind of works on it throughout the day after that but she i know i i kind of kept telling her she was like this is so much fun i was like just wait till it's work in like a week and yeah so she's had a few bad days since then but yeah i'm very proud of her uh, i'm not allowed to read it i told her I wow didn't. way to be uh way to be supportive no i'm I, having so much fun yeah it's not gonna last it's true i'm trying yeah, man I tried i'm writing to- a romance novel oh i hate that genre yeah. you're, you're, you're a great <laughs> husband hey uh i i'm there to be supportive but also to question and uh trust me if you don't think that she didn't ask me questions about my movie and the script ideas that i have trust me i i hear all about her uh perspective so you know it doesn't sound like you're there to question it just sounds like you're there to run your fucking mouth when no one asks you to uh, hey i'm uh, times are tough we're stuck in this house but i'm having a really good time (laughs) you won't well, yeah, it's one. It's uh, well, it's probably that bitter thing because I'm over here writing too, and I'm and she's like having a good time, and I'm just like like writing's hard. It's emotional. It's draining. And she's like, eh, I'm having a good time, and I'm just like, fuck off, newbie. You know, just like start writing romance scripts. Maybe maybe she's got I, it all figured out. I am writing a romance script right now, but I am writing a romantic comedy right now. Well, then maybe maybe you're doing something wrong. Maybe she's got the key. She's got the answers. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure she does. I rely on her for everything. But, you know, in terms of the romantic comedy, I think we're going about we're we're writing two very different versions of romantic comedies. Oh, uh, yes. <laughs> I don't want to spoil anything, but I know what Phil's story is about and I would be shocked if Shell's writing something similar. Yeah. That's all I will say. But that's awesome. That's truly awesome for Shell. That's very cool. I hope uh, down the road, we can be promoting and talking about her book on the shelves at the bookstores that will eventually be opened again, and people will be buying it, and you guys can buy a house. That would be amazing. Uh, yeah, I'd fucking love it. Um, I'm very proud of her. I, I'm excited to read it. Um, 
I think I know she's nervous for me, for me to read it. Um, but I told her also I don't want to read the first draft. I don't want to read anyone's first draft of anything. Uh, yeah. So just, I agree with that. Yeah, I work. I told her to you know do another draft or two, read it a few times, and then like you know make sure before she gives it to me because I will be critical because I'm a dick and. Um, not in a mean way, but you know, I'll be like, ah, eh, maybe you could work on this story point or whatever. I'm not just going to be like, this is good job, honey. Like no matter what, I mean, I will say obviously good job, but you know what I mean? I will not just blindly be like, good job. And that's all I'll say. I'll have notes. Yeah. I mean, some, you know, sometimes in any writer's life, they just need someone to, to tell them they're doing good work. But at the end of the day, yeah, especially with people whose opinion you really respect and who you trust for feedback. It doesn't do anyone any good to just say, yeah, I really like it. You know, over, over the years uh, of being a screenwriter, I've come to realize there, there are certain people who I would initially go to for feedback and realize um, through experience, like, yeah, I just can't rely on them to be honest with me. They're, they're too nice or they don't want to hurt my feelings or, or they just don't have, uh, what they say to me as feedback does not help me in any way, either good or bad, you know? Yeah. And I also feel like, you know, hopefully, you know, obviously someone's going to need to read your quote unquote first draft, but it shouldn't be the literal first draft that you finish writing. To me, I feel like the first draft that somebody reads is you finish the first draft of the text you go back and edit it clean it up a little bit give it a once over read make some changes and then if you don't have anything major you know you need to fix that's when you can send it off and be like hey any ideas yeah what do you think so far but it's not the actual like the end send print what do you guys think yeah you got you got to do a little work to the for the benefit of the people who were you know, doing you the favor of reading your unpublished work. Yeah, I think that's what I really learned was like, it's really hard to ask people to set aside two hours of their time to read your script if, you, if they're not being paid or some reason. So it's one thing to ask them to do it. It's another to be like, I have five drafts I want you to read. It's like, ah, they probably, unless you've done some pretty drastic changes, are not going to want to read your script five times. And, you know, so if you're going to give it to them, make sure it's a version that you feel pretty comfortable with and can defend and, or, and are also willing to take notes on and stuff like that but yeah she's writing that's kind of what we've been doing though it's been an exciting time you know i've just been sitting in the corner writing and watching stuff and she's been working and writing and it's been nice over here uh you know outside of the coronavirus like quarantine awfulness of the outside world the harmony inside of our home is 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 nice and zen that's fantastic well let's talk about what we have been doing for this podcast there are plenty of things that we have that we have read, that we have watched, that we have heard, um, that we plan on talking about, particularly this week. Phil, do you want to tell the audience exactly what we're going to talk about and where we should start? All right, well, we can start. Uh, you know, there's we have a little bit of news. Uh, some film-related articles came out. Tom and I mentioned last week that we were going to watch Frankenstein at the National Theater on YouTube. I, unfortunately, I don't think it's going to be there by the time this episode drops, but the National Theater, I think, is putting up Jane Eyre next. And I can, I just to continue to reiterate that, um, those are just, they're really fucking awesome. And they're, you have a one-week opportunity to watch a lot of them. They're big stars doing major productions. I, they're free. I can't recommend them enough. Uh, you want to talk about Frankenstein? And we'll kind of bounce around from there. Since I, yeah. I, I watched it today, we both watched it today. We're fresh. Yes, um, 
And I will just say, Phil is absolutely right. I mean, the we we mentioned that we were both planning on watching Frankenstein last week's episode, which did drop on Tuesday. So if anybody listened to that podcast in time, they had a couple of days to watch at least one of the two versions. Um, and hopefully they, some people out there continue to do that, I assume. Like I said, it is, uh, we're recording Thursday night on May 7th, so I assume in a, within the hour, the second version of Frankenstein will no longer be available. I know the Benedict Cumberbatch version, where he plays the monster, left today. Um, yeah. I watched uh, uh, both versions, um, Benedict Cumberbatch and Johnny Lee Miller traded off roles as uh, the doctor, Victor Frankenstein, and Frankenstein's creation. And um, Phil watched the version where Johnny Lee plays the monster, right? Yeah, yeah. That was the only one available. And, and I'm looking, it's still up right now. So uh, I you know, can't speak to four days from now, but it's still up this moment. Yeah. Um, but yeah, highly recommend that or Jane Eyre, uh, which I believe may already be available. If not, it should be by tomorrow. Uh, definitely by the time this podcast drops and people are able to listen to it. I mean, for those who don't know, the National Theatre Productions in London are, you know, it's basically the Broadway of London. It's like the highest uh, quality of production. They get some really big name actors and uh, Frankenstein you know, it was minimal set design, but uh, a huge stage, a massive lighting setup, uh, really world-class actors, obviously. Benedict Cumberbatch is a huge actor, um, famous around the world at this point. Johnny Lee Miller is a very well-known stage actor in England. He was obviously sick boy in train spotting. You know, he's had a, a very good career for a very long time. Very a you know, an A list actor. He was also Sherlock Holmes also Sherlock Holmes in elementary, like Mr. Benedict Cumberbatch. They both have played Sherlock Holmes in modern adaptations. Yes. Both have played Sherlock and Frankenstein. I wonder how many people can say that. Oh, uh, but yeah, it's very good. So I, I'm, like I said, we can, the staging's amazing. Uh, I, I don't, unfortunately, like we've said, you can't really watch it probably. So we don't want to like go into too much detail about how great it was, but um, just keep checking out the National Theater uh, homepage on YouTube. Like for, if you're into looking for something uh, to distract you and that's more than what's on Netflix, like can't recommend it enough. And I do, uh, I need to talk about it for a minute. So um, I, I will say as someone who I'm a huge, huge Frankenstein fan, I read the novel many, many years ago, and it was probably the first novel that was written uh, a long, long time ago. Like uh, I, I would say the first 19th century it's, novel. It's an 1818 that, novel. Yes. Uh, it, it's the first 19th century novel that I love. Like, I've read a few in my day. Uh, I do like H.G. Wells' novels. I've read um, Dracula by Bram Stoker. But uh, Frankenstein is the king of those novels, for me personally. I'm just a huge fan. I think it's incredibly well-written. I think it's actually, it's very it's a very heady novel, but it's very easy to read, which is amazing because it's 200 years old at this point. But um, this stage version is incredibly faithful to very, the novel. Yeah, very faithful. I was kind of surprised, actually. Yes. Uh, most people, I'm sure, uh, probably view the Frankenstein story as this this monster, this creation who can barely speak, 
and who kind of bumbles around. Um, but in the novel and in this play version that they adapted to the stage, he becomes a very eloquent creation. He adapts to humanity very, very fast. Um, unlike the original James Whale movies, uh, Frankenstein and Bride of Frankenstein, in the novel, he wants a wife. So it's, it's basically the first two Universal Monster movies combined into one story, mixed with the eloquent Frankenstein that you get in uh, a lot of the stage adaptations or the Penny Dreadful TV series where that monster is very eloquent or the um, Kenneth Branagh version where the monster is very eloquent. You get that character, which is great for the actors who get to perform. So the play is about two hours long and the first, the first half an hour is the monster coming to life and... Uh, Phil, can we just talk about this this first act of this play for a little bit? Because a, a, a little it's bit. It's one of the craziest things I've ever seen. A little bit, yeah. It's it's the birth of Frankenstein, and let's just say the performers have a ball. They go all out. They are they they basically are um, flailing birth like from uh, this lightning strike. Yeah, a lot of that. <laughs> they're, they're basically in this like embryonic sack. Uh, they come to life. They're rolling around on the ground. They're basically, you know, they're in like a flesh-toned uh, pair of boxer briefs, so it looks like they're naked. They're, the makeup is incredible. Their bodies are horribly scarred and disfigured, you know, because obviously Frankenstein's monster is supposed to be... Stitched from a, separate bodies. Yeah, Exactly. Uh, with, you know, internal organs from all different places stitched inside them. Uh, you saw the Johnny Miller version uh which he does a really good job. What what I this is what I really want to talk about. I want to focus on the different performances and like what they did specifically in this intro. So what Johnny does is he uses a lot of like like pent up energy of trying to like spasm his whole body at once because it's twenty. I mean it's twenty twenty five minutes of this monster learning how to be a human where he he hasn't learned to talk yet he hasn't even learned how to walk yet he doesn't know what each part of his body is yet and the way johnny plays it is he kind of like spasms his whole body at once like he has a lot of energy that he just like shakes out in these violent moves whereas what benedict cumberbatch does um his intro is actually a lot longer since i watched both versions so i timed it out and the the version where benedict plays the monster is i think Overall, the play is like an extra 10 minutes, and it's pretty much all because of that beginning. He milks the fuck out of that intro. He, he uses, he takes each time, like one body part at a time, learning how to move it and work it. It's, it's literally like an infant first finding out object permanence and like where each hand is and what it does, what each foot is and what that does. It is the craziest thing I've ever seen on a stage. And it's just a hoot. If you can watch it, please do. You, ha you have to find a way to watch this. I did record a couple minutes of the Johnny Lee monster performance. Uh, the part you love where he's humping where the grass and he starts <laughs> to eat it. Yeah, that was like, I was just laughing. I was like, man, I almost like... I, I was unfortunately distracted. I was like wanting to record it and think of like a meme, like me when quarantine's over type thing. Um, but yeah, I was really enjoying him fucking the grass. 
And the music during that part is incredible. It's this very triumphant music where he's finally learned to stand and move around. And he's he's the first instance of Frankenstein's monster being treated horribly by humanity, by other people, has already occurred. So the monster's very despondent. But then suddenly he hears these birds chirping. He starts bathing in the warm sunlight. And this music swells and it's very triumphant. And it's actually a very moving scene. The rain starts coming down on him, and at first he's scared of it, and then he embraces the the rain, and he basically gets a shower from nature, and he starts drinking the water, and then he starts eating the grass, and it's all all this stuff. You see him learning how to become a self-sustaining person, and I recorded a few minutes of that because I love the music so much, and also the performance is great, so I'll put that on Instagram so people can at least see a couple minutes of what we're talking about. But it's a really good stage performance. Um, both actors are incredible. I preferred Benedict Cumberbatch's um, version of the of Frankenstein. I thought he brought a lot of anger to the Doctor, um, whereas I thought Benedict's version of the monster kind of focused on the the tragedy a little bit more. Where I felt like Johnny's version of the monster had a lot more anger. And uh, like pent up frustration, so it was really interesting to watch the same production on back to back days. I watched Benedict's version of the monster yesterday and Johnny's today, and uh, that was really fun. It was a really fun experiment to do. I had never been able to do something like that, you know, see the same production back to back days with two the same two actors playing the two title roles and just switching them and seeing what they each brought, like what similarities and what differences they both had. So I, I really did enjoy that. All right. what And you watched uh, Parks and Rec today. Let's talk about that. Yeah. Parks and Rec did a uh, half hour, basically a fundraiser, um, a, a special quarantine episode where they all recorded it at home. It was like a Zoom call, but uh, set up as an episode. I mean, first things first, Parks and Rec was a great show. I loved it. So I was super happy to see it again. And... Um, My main takeaway from that episode is I can't think of a a better show to be the first show to do this. I know uh, Community just announced today. I don't know if you saw it. Yeah, like they're going to table read thing. Yeah, they're going to do a live table read uh, in a week and a half or something like that. Um, Similar, they're going to air it. I forget on what channel. Uh, Probably. Where did well they ended up on Yahoo, so I don't know if it would actually end up on NBC where they started. But anyway, it'll probably just well, be online or something. I don't know. It'll you know, I th- I think, go to YouTube. I think it's airing on some network channel, but obviously most people end up watching it online. Yeah. But anyway, I think um, you know if this quarantine continues and more shows continue to do it, I think Parks and Rec is the perfect torchbearer to do something like this because I think what that show ultimately is about is. Uh, the the general goodness of humanity and the importance of community, you know, and and friendship. It's a very positive comedy where I feel I feel like, you know, in the past twenty years, a lot of especially American uh, sitcoms and comedic shows, a lot of them, you know, use awkward or really biting satiric humor. And Parks and Rec, I think, was really special because they went so far in the opposite direction they were really a positive sitcom you know yeah 
Do you know what I'm saying by that? I do know what you're saying, Tom. It's uh, like I, I guess I, to, to be honest, like I, I am wholeheartedly embrace them like raising money, and uh, I understand the limitations. But I really, I don't want TV to like become this. Like I, it was a fine episode. I would not watch more than one of them. Uh, like. Uh, the the kind of zoom call because you have your limitations i mean i know that there's like the unfriended type movies of the world i just i really hope this is not like a new norm for any length of time like i don't get me wrong like i thought the episode was cute i think if you're a fan of parks and rec like it's a great to see all everyone back but you know obviously and there's limitations that i'm not like mad at the show for like having to work around it's obviously understandable it's more just like a kind of man i hope that this isn't the direction that we have to head in like because it just doesn't there's like I said, there's just too many limitations to kind of making a show that way. Um, with well, this this obviously isn't going to be the new norm. Well, I mean, like you know, like you said, if other shows try to follow suit, like the communities and other things, like I think, like you were saying, Parks and Rec is more well equipped with its kind of a lighthearted, warm tone to just kind of hang out with them. I don't. I mean, I guess like the it's always sunny in Philadelphia crew could do this type of thing if they wanted to and do a funny version of it. Um, but I just hope. You know, I, you know I, I hope that TV production can in some way come back in a reasonable amount enough time so that, you know, there's no, no need for these types of productions. But no, of, of course, you're, you're missing what I'm saying completely. Of course, TV is going to come back and be what it used to be. I'm talking about a special one-off. Here's something to entertain me while we're going through this tough time. I'm saying Parks and Rec is the perfect torch-bearing show to do that because their message has always been about the importance of loving your neighbor and community and you know coming together as a town or as a city or a state and really bonding together the whole point of that show especially as a show where the characters uh worked in local government it just was a natural fit to have a show talk about the coronavirus and being in lockdown and leslie nope having to shut down the actual public parks which is what was her passion on that show you know like it really it it worked very well on that level as a way to raise money for people who are struggling right now and fit into the actual structure of the show i'm not saying of of course shows are not going to suddenly be like this that's insane but as one as one-off shows for older shows that that went away like like uh, Community or Parks and Rec. I think it's really fun to see those guys again in a little half-hour special for a way that will hopefully raise money. I think they ended up raising six figures or something like that. Yeah, that's awesome. I obviously have no problem with that. My problem is more just like, man, like I the the format doesn't interest me as like a creative... I know it's not their fault, but I'm saying just long-term creative terms. That's It's not my most favorite uh structure for an episode type thing well yeah of course did you think it was going to (laughs) i don't know i don't i'm just saying i know i know it's really easy i just don't want i just i guess i'm hoping to have something more than just to sit here and say like yeah parks and rec is great it was great i loved it it was great it was funny it was nice to see everyone um like i guess i'm trying maybe i'm just reaching but um like of course yeah i'm happy everyone's back yeah i'm kind of shocked that you're (laughs) That this is your angle, other than I'm, I'm just I, talking about like the like did it? It was never supposed to be like this new model. For no, television. I'm not. I'm not saying it it's was spe- a, no, it was no. A I thought I thought you it were... was like a happy event. Yeah, and That's it. and yeah, and it was great, and it was fine, and I guess like I was sure. I am I am fine with it as a 
fundraising thing. I will just say, like, by halfway through the episode, I was pretty bored and I wasn't laughing anymore. That's all I'm saying. That's I guess that's really all I'm saying. I wasn't thrilled with it as a piece of comedy. How about that? Maybe that's just me being a dick. They didn't have a, a long time to write it. I get it. It's just happy to hang out with everybody and sing Little Sebastian. I love it. I'm not trying to be a Debbie Downer. Maybe I am. Maybe the, the world has not encouraged me this week that we all are loving and community-filled people who just want to hug. But uh, no, it's it's fine if you didn't think it, if you didn't think it was that funny. Obviously, as you know, if you were to compare it to a regular ep of Parks and Rec, I, I wouldn't say it was like one of the stronger eps. But that that like I said, that was not the point. I know, I know. And I, I think it's crazy that that's, that was your angle. All right. Well, what's your angle on Scream Five? Let's talk about Scream Five because we gotta get we gotta get moving. We got so much to talk about. Yeah, uh, Scream Five is apparent. Well, I didn't. I sent you that article about Neff Campbell because I didn't even know that Scream Five was this far into discussions. Apparently, Scream Five is in the works as uh, an actual project that's going to happen with the Happy Death Day team, uh, the writer, directing, I guess, producing team who did uh, the original Happy Death Day and the sequel. And I just sent Phil an article that said. They've discussed with Nev Campbell the possibility of bringing her character, Sydney Prescott, back for a fifth Scream. I know after Scream 4 finished, uh, initially there was talk that they were going to make an entirely new trilogy with Wes Craven, with Nev Campbell, the original cast, you know, David Arquette and Courtney Cox specifically, plus some of the newer characters that came on, the younger crew from Scream 4. That obviously went to shit when uh, the movie kind of underperformed. It didn't bomb, but it wasn't a huge hit. And then, of course, Wes Craven died a few years later. So Nev Campbell was always very public about, I'm not doing a scream without Wes. He's the heart and soul of that franchise. Um, You know, Nev is, is the main character of Scream. She is as much a part of that franchise as Ghostface is. Um, more so than, I, I guess the only, the only character I can compare it to, uh, is Laurie Strode in Halloween, you know, like yeah. uh, obviously all those major horror franchises, you have your monster, your killer, your final, your, but yeah, your ultimate final girl of the series, I guess. Yeah. Like Texas Chainsaw doesn't really have a character like that. Nightmare on Elm Street has, um, Nancy, but it's not quite on the same level. She was in three movies, um, and she's great. But I think you, you know, Freddy totally became that franchise, and you could you could just keep continuing that franchise without Nancy, without Heather Langenkamp, and it would be okay. Uh, Scream without Sydney Prescott, I don't know. I don't think it works. So the fact that they're talking to her, and Nev Campbell seems on board now, which is, I think that's awesome. Uh, according to this article, she said, you know, I talked to the guys and they have a really, they have a very particular angle they want to tackle with the Scream 5. And a lot of it is out of complete reverence to Wes Craven. Like she said, these guys clearly love him. They're true fans. They respect what he did. They want to continue in his footsteps and not try to reinvent the wheel with a new Scream. They want to continue in his tradition. And I support that. So I think it would be cool if I was a part of it which to me is great as people who know me know scream the original scream changed my life completely it is as big a reason as any that i am a huge movie and horror movie buff Uh, i love the entire franchise warts and all 
but a Scream 5. I even watched that MTV Scream show, which had nothing to do with the original cast, but it's just, if it's Scream, I'm, I'm going to be there. So, long story short, if they make a Scream 5, I am going to see it, but my excitement level, if Nev Campbell's a part of it, it goes up tenfold. I don't know if you care one way or another, probably not, and I don't blame you. But uh, um, that article ex- excited and surprised me, I guess. I mean, I, I, yes and no. Actually, the idea of it not being Wes Craven excites me more. Like, no offense, Wes. Like, left le- to- total legend, but he had run out of, his, run out of some gas by the end there. Um, yeah. So if he, you know, if they were like, it's it'd be like if they were like, hey, um, uh what's it, Jason Reitman's dad Ivan they're like hey Ivan Reitman's coming back for the new Ghostbusters movie I'd be like I don't care that's not a good you know like for me that's not a good thing um but yeah, yeah so the idea of it being a kind of a new crew who might have a new take interests me but I'm kind of like I guess in that still headspace of like I'll wait and see what your pitch is um and I also like I you know I I, I wonder I always wonder with these series if they're going to go so far up their ass to like make sense that Sydney's still being you know, involved in the story. And it's like, you know, I think Ghostface is probably iconic enough that uh, you could do something with it. Maybe not a total reboot, but, you know, carry that imagery on. I think the Ghostface mask is just as iconic as Sidney Prescott. Um, But I know what you mean by Nev Campbell being like one of the rare exceptions for the series and her coming back would be, I don't know if it's the only reason I would say it's not a big deal is because she's in the first four. It's not like she went away for several movies like Jamie Lee Curtis did. Like, so it's not like a big return. Um, I mean, maybe for horror fans who know about the Wes Craven angle, but you know, so the the idea of Nev Campbell being back doesn't, I'm I'm like, yeah, what else is Nev Campbell doing? Like that doesn't necessarily, that doesn't necessarily. Right. Right. I'm just saying it. But yeah, if it gets good reviews, I will see it. I promise. Or if you like it, I I, I never saw the fourth one though, to be honest. (laughs) So, yeah, obviously Halloween continued without Jamie Lee Curtis, and the the movies weren't as good. Some were better than others, but horror fans are going to go regardless. Um, yeah, it's weird. I think uh, I I actually really enjoy Scream Four. Uh, it's not on the level of the first one or or even the second one, which I think is a, a supremely underrated horror sequel. But um, yeah, if they just want to keep trying to make a new one every six or eight or 10 years until Nev Campbell's 90 years old. I don't know. Go for it, I guess. But I guess it all depends. If they want to kind of reboot the franchise and start making a Scream 5, 6, 7, 8, if they can figure out a a tasteful way to transition from Sydney to a a new angle that doesn't involve her in later movies, I think it'd be cool to bring her back for one and then move on from there. But if they just have a plan for... They just want to do a Scream 5, and that's what the story is. I think it would be much better if Nev Campbell's involved. And also, incidentally, like you were saying, you're more excited that Wes isn't involved. For the people who are involved, I'm a big fan of Happy Death Day. That's That was one of my biggest surprises of the entire decade last year in terms of the horror genre. I absolutely love that first movie. And the sequel, while it wasn't as successful both commercially and critically. I thought it was a really interesting idea for a sequel. I like that they didn't, while they did, you know, repeat a lot of the same steps, they tried to do something different at the same time to the point where they even completely mixed up the genre. The, the first one is a slasher send up. 
and the second Happy Death Day is more of like a sci-fi comedy. And I really like that. To, to me, that shows that these are creative guys. So the idea of them handling the property, I think, is cool. Well, it's still in discussion, so we've got a long way to go until that comes out. But I, I am quite confident if we are doing the pod and that movie is made, we will review it. Oh, for sure. We're going to have a whole Scream franchise episode. All Maybe right. we'll just do that anyway. All right. Well, on that note, speaking of failed franchises or franchises that have uh, struggled in later years, let's talk about the Fantastic Four franchise and Mr. Josh Trank. Um, uh, yes. For those of you who do not know, Josh Trank was a big director at, at one point in time. He had made the f- film Chronicle. That was his breakthrough. And after that, he was a kind of appointed the new Hollywood golden boy. And he went on to direct the Fantastic Four reboot with uh, Kate Mara and Michael B. Jordan uh, and uh, Miles Teller. And and who's the who played the thing? I don't remember. But uh, anyway, the movie was a complete bomb. And after that, he was fired from a Star Wars movie. And all these Hollywood kind of stories kicked up around that time period about him letting dogs ruin uh, houses, uh, him storming off set, him throwing these tantrums. And basically, he just kind of vanished and went to what's known in the industry as director's jail. And uh, so this piece that just came out this week that I sent Tom because it kind of fascinated me for a number of reasons. It's on Polygon. Um, It's basically this author has followed Josh Trank around for four years and was around for the four or the fantastic four stuff and has been around in the intervening years to kind of watch the downfall and see how Trank has tried to turn himself around. And I I think my main takeaway from the piece, uh, I I highly recommend reading, especially if you're interested in uh, studio filmmaking and the, I'll I'll put the link in the notes when I, when the podcast comes out so people can just click on it in their podcast feed. If you were interested in the politics of Hollywood filmmaking and studio filmmaking and franchise filmmaking, uh, I think it's a fascinating read and I I think it really speaks to the mindset of studios and who they're willing to hire and uh, what they're willing to put up with uh, for various reasons. And I just walked away pretty angry at the, not at the article, but at Trank, not so much because I think he's an evil guy or anything. It's more, to me, he seems so entitled and so uh, the exact thing that I think is wrong with Hollywood blockbuster filmmaking in terms of the egos that run those films that run rampant and the kind of un, especially the uneducated. That was kind of the thing that really bothered me was here is a guy who made a shitty fantastic four movie. And one of the reasons why is because he hated the fantastic four. He didn't care about the fantastic four. And for some reason, after all these offers to direct other movies, he wants to do something with superheroes, even though he doesn't like superheroes. And so stuff like that. And then kind of the, other personality quirks. I think that the writer of the essay is coming at it as a kind of, I think this is a sad story about a guy who has anger issues and won't face them. And I think is, I think it sees it a bit more as a tragedy. And I kind of looked at it as, you know, fuck this guy. Like maybe, yeah, he's been treated a little wrong in the press, but overall, like uh, these guys uh, for, I don't care. I don't care if he ever, works in this town again type thing you know like it's me i'm just like go away i don't you sound like a dick i don't i don't know what was your takeaway from the article outside of the like we'll talk more about i guess the the politics of making movies but um because there was one or two quotes from the article that i that i really walked away uh taking to heart uh that i'd like to talk about later but what was your takeaway your big takeaways from the article man well 
I, I agree with some things you're saying, but yeah, I see this pretty differently, actually. Sure. Which surprised me. Um, so is it okay if I, uh, I, I just want to read a bit when you, you sent me this article two days ago and you followed it up with a text. Do you mind if I just read a, a piece of the text that you sent? Yeah, sure. I don't care. Because this, this kind of influenced how I went into it. So you sent me this article, um, which is called Joss Trank, the post-disaster artist. And, uh, you wrote, um... Yeah, I didn't really have an opinion about Trank before, but after reading it, he seems like a huge part of what I hate in studio filmmaking and the fact that guys like this get to keep making movies. He's not an evil guy, but I just felt the greatest sense of white male entitlement and absurdly unfounded ego, right? Right, yeah. Which I think, I think, I think that's fair. Um, so I went into it thinking like, okay, this is, this is going to be another story about how Hollywood keeps backing white directors, white male directors. Um, this guy probably has a, a huge ego and he's a piece of shit. And why does he get to continue working? And a lot of that is true. He, he has this massive ego. Uh, he self-destructed completely. And the, the difference, I guess, what I see in this article is... I thought it was framed more as a redemption story, or at least a chance at redemption. So one thing you left out, you mentioned uh, all the Fantastic Four stuff, which is true. He completely uh, tried to go and make that movie for all the wrong reasons, in my opinion. It's discussed in great detail in the article, and the movie bombs. He also like stabs the people in the back while it comes out. You know, one of the biggest reasons why he became persona non grata in Hollywood was as the Fantastic Four film that he made was being released, he put out a tweet like, oh, if only you guys could actually see the good version of this movie. I mean, as as its opening weekend was about to happen, which is just, that's such a shit move. That's such like a petulant little dick move. Yeah. And he got in a lot of trouble for that, as he should have. That's, that was a dick move. But before he made this movie, he made a, a, this you know, lower budget superhero film called Chronicle, which is what made him get all these offers for all these different projects before finally setting, settling on Fantastic Four. Chronicle made a ton of money. It, um, especially for its budget, it was a massive, massive hit. This guy was super young. He was in his like late twenties when he made Chronicle. He hadn't, he definitely hadn't hit 30 yet. So, you know, a lot of people obviously, looked at him like, oh, maybe this guy has the magic touch and he's going to be the next great thing. So we're all willing to throw money at him and be a part of the, the Josh Trank show, right? That that all makes sense to me. See, no, you've already lost me. Like, I, I not that, that what you're saying is wrong, but that I can't believe that this is the mentality of this, like, studio system. Like, Why? Because, I mean, not so much that, I, I get that Chronicle's a big hit and they want to, like, give him other projects that makes total sense to me what doesn't make sense to me is that you're you're now capable of directing star wars that that kind of give you the keys to the kingdom we're going to give you the keys to our biggest properties based off of a very low budget 
like like movie that was 90 minutes long and made with a very spe- specific visual style. And there's been no evidence. He's never made a short. He, he made a one minute short film before that. That was also kind of a Star Wars joke. That's kind of why he got brought in on the Star Wars conversations. But to me, that idea of like w- the studio will not let anyone grow into that kind of studio, big scale blockbuster filmmaker anymore. They're hiring these small scale people who have safety not guaranteed directors making Jurassic Worlds and you have these kind of huge blow-ups at the studio level because they're hiring people who have not had a chance to develop into making those size productions before and so you have somebody like Trank and again this is why I'm saying he's not an evil guy but I think he mishandled a bad situation that like well okay but hold on first off uh I well I don't necessarily disagree with that part I think what what really happened was all of the studios basically put themselves in a bidding war for Josh Trank. And the product didn't matter. So when he decided, I want to do Fantastic Four, they said, sure, we just want to be in business with you. I disagree that that is what is only happening. I mean, the the article even mentions um, guys like, uh, I'm I'm totally, uh, Ryan Coogler, who did not, go this route he did an indie film he was doing the sundance labs and workshop in his town as a director then he did a small film called fruitville station and then he did a medium budget film creed, creed yeah before going to black panther so that took he took smaller steps to get where he is he didn't just blow up yeah and you have like your ryan johnson's to, making looper and brothers bloom and and, other and, and the safety not guarantee your other example Jurassic Jurassic World was a massive success. Like that that's not a great example to show why it went wrong. I mean, obviously he he worked his way out of the Rise of Skywalker or the final Star Wars project, whatever he was gonna call it. I know it was something else. But he went from safety not guaranteed to Jurassic World, and by anyone's estimation, I mean, unless you want to argue whether or not it's as good as Jurassic Park, which obviously it is not. But any estimation in the business of Hollywood, that worked out perfectly for them. But as soon I as mean, but as soon as he's removed from the market of yeah, that's a it's an IP that exists. That there's already a huge there. People are going to show up to a Jurassic Park film. That's not because of Colin Trevorrow. And as soon as he gets to make his own movie, Book of Henry, it's a flop. That's awful. And it's one of the worst reviewed movies of the year. And but yet despite that he's still going to get to go make another Jurassic World movie and I guess the frustration comes out of like people like Trank who I I get that it's not all their fault they're put in a bad situation maybe they mishandled it but he's going to keep getting chances and there's so many filmmakers who don't get those chances and that's where the like egotistical white male entitlement comes from where I'm just like this guy feels like he's on the level of Spielberg and has no reason to think that and hold on hold on let's 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 not let's break this down and talk about this Okay. Well, because right. yeah, I think I think I think you're jumping a lot of steps and making a lot of assumptions, bef- because some of the arguments that you're making and examples of you're using don't back your argument. Because to just to just write off Jurassic World as a step from safety not guaranteed to Jurassic World and say, well, anyone would have gone to see Jurassic World, that's not necessarily true. We don't know that there hadn't yes, been a Jurassic. Do. There hadn't been a Jurassic Park movie in fifteen years and when they, that movie. But came they out. got a different director for nobody, the second no, one, and they dude nobody knew that movie was going to break records its opening weekend and make six hundred million domestic. Nobody knew that. You cannot say with confidence. And you think that that's because of Colin Trevorrow happen. and not because of dinosaurs and Chris Pratt? 
I'm saying he made a movie that made it happen. It wasn't necessarily a great movie, but it could have been a disaster. Like, Josh Trank's Fantastic Four movie was a disaster. Sure. That movie should have made way more money. Okay, well, right? enough about Trevorrow. I, I I mean, I guess I just, like, I'm saying he's an example of someone who came from a very small background, or the guy who made Cop Car and then gets to go make a Spider-Man movie. You know, like, yeah, the Spider-Man movie worked out too, but I don't know if that's because... Yes, of, it, wor- it worked but that's, out. But that's because these people are being put into a fucking Marvel movie. They're going to see a Marvel movie. They don't care about who the director is. That's my problem. And, like, I'm saying that people like Trank, who... For me, I just think he comes off like a really big dick, and I don't like feel like he should. He who seems a rather artless, egotistical dick, and I can't believe while reading this that he is still going to get to keep making feature films with big studios and big actors for the rest of his life. Which I'm not saying he doesn't deserve. I'm not saying he's an evil guy, but like I'm just saying like there's so many people who don't get those chances, or the you know the Patty Jenkins of the world, or the other people who go to director's jail for 10 plus years and never get to make a movie again. And it just, it wouldn't be tolerated from them. And yeah, I'm talking about minorities and women and all those other things. I'm not trying to be like, I'm not trying to be like a woke bro, but I'm trying to just say like, yeah, there is, when I read this article and I read this guy who's made a one minute short film and then feels entitled to like the world. I, to me, it rubs me the wrong way. And uh, you know, I'm sorry that I prefer, I, I just, to me, it just rubs me the wrong way. I'm not saying like, no, we we agree with that part, Phil. We agree with it. Calm down, first off. No, but I guess I don't understand why you think, like, I'm crazy for saying, like, I would rather... I understand why studios don't get David Fincher to direct Jurassic World because, you know, he's going to enforce a kind of control on that that they don't want and all that totally... I'm not, I'm, I'm not saying you're crazy. I'm saying your examples were bad, if that's the point you're trying to make. And the other thing that you're forgetting, you you just bring up that he like made a one minute Star Wars short and now he gets the world. He made a very successful movie. So all I'm saying is that it's natural for them to want to go after that and latch on to that. He became a success. It was his idea, his movie. Chronicle was his property that he got made with a ch- that's with a why mo- they were sorry. That's why they were interested in him. That makes sense to me. I'm not judging it whether it's right or wrong. I'm not mad. I'm just saying it makes sense. Yes, you are. Mad. No, no, I'm you're, no, you're I'm not. I'm not mad. mad. I know I'm not mad that they were interested in him. I'm mad that Star Wars was interested in him. Like that's the part that bothers me. That the 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 jump is what bothers me. It's not. I don't care that he's getting more opportunities. That doesn't bother me at all. I understand he made a successful movie, but it's like I don't understand this just because you've directed. Uh, a $1 million movie does not mean your, your next movie should be $250 million. And that's what has led to, yes, the Trevor's of the world getting fired from Star Wars, the uh, other smaller director. How many people have been fired from Star Wars movies now? And how many people have been attached to Yeah, Marvel but who movies? also, who made the worst Star Wars movie of the modern age? J.J. Abrams. Sure, but that was after Trevor got fired and he only had like six months to work on the script and blah, 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 blah. But I'm saying this is all studio's fault. I'm not... And by all accounts, that Trevor's story was better. I'm not trying to trash Colin Trevorrow. I'm just saying that he made a small movie and then got but to make you Jurassic. Are, you World. are you are trashing him. No, I'm saying no. I don't understand what you're saying. I'm just saying he made a small movie 
safety not guaranteed and then he directed jurassic world which i'm saying i don't think he sh- people who made safety not guaranteed i don't understand why they're being talked to to direct jurassic world and i get that yes after that jurassic world's a hit the world is calling trevor's finger fingertips you know i i get that that to- i understand what you're saying i'm just saying that no one wants to see jurassic world because of colin trevor that's all i'm saying like but don't you think you if they don't the, open up that movie being a hit is not for for, for the record we got to get back to Josh Trank, but let me just say this. Don't you think, because I, I remember when this was happening and guys like Ryan Johnson were getting attached to Star Wars and you we were super excited about that. Don't you think, if your argument is these guys, because you, you're basically saying two different things that contradict themselves to me. So either... I'm not understanding you or you got to make it more clear because on the one level you're saying guys who make these small movies should not take these massive jumps to these huge properties. But on the other thing, on the other side, you're saying it bothers me that guys like Trank and are going to be able to keep making movies no matter what, because they're entitled white guys there. I, I, I believe both things. Hold on, hold on, yeah. hold on. But don't you think it's a good thing if the studio is going to open up their world and all of their IP to these younger directors who are making movies? Don't you think that opens up the opportunity for other filmmakers like Patty Jenkins, who eventually got to make a massive superhero movie and did a really good job with it, to have their chances? Because... It's not like these guys of the safety not guaranteed in Chronicle Worlds got these chances, but before that, it were all these minorities. It was a much smaller, much more inclusive club that were making these movies before the studios opened up their world and said, we're going to pick these young up-and-coming directors to start taking on these huge properties that we have. Okay. Well, maybe they haven't. Maybe they haven't had great success, and maybe they haven't always picked the right choices. But they're expanding their world, and they're expanding the number of people. Just if you want to talk pure numbers, and pure number of artists and young artists and unproven and unknown people getting opportunities, that has grown, and it's grown because studios are taking chances on guys like Colin Trevorrow or Josh Trank. I guess my point is not so much that I'm against people having chances, but I'm against if you're in charge of a studio and Josh Trank is like, I really want to make this Fantastic Four movie you guys have been trying to make for years. And they're like, cool, that sounds great. What's your pitch? And he's like, I actually don't like the Fantastic Four. At that point, if you're a fucking studio head, I don't care that he made Chronicle and you liked Chronicle. Like, at what point are you like, sorry, we, we, you know, we want to protect this property and not just give it away to somebody to trash it. You know, like that, and the, I'm saying it's not all Trank's fault. I'm saying like part of this to me, his career spoke to a broader problem that I'm that I have. Not so much that has to do specifically with Trank making all the wrong decisions. To me, it has more to do with I don't, I, I don't think that studios, I, I, you know, and it depends on the studio. And Fox it was notoriously shitty at times, especially when it comes to handling Fantastic Four and X Men and a number of their properties. Like they they didn't handle them well for years and uh i got for me this is part of that it, it definitely is kind of a behind the scenes where it's like well of course the fantastic four movie didn't do well if you have one of your co-writers and director of the movie saying like he's never read a single fantastic four comic book like uh, that's my problem like i get that if i mean if josh trank came in there was like i'm a giant fantastic four fan this is my dream project i've always had this pitch i know i haven't like made much before but like i really like want to step up and like i'd be all for that i don't care and the other issue i would say is that yes i do think there is certainly 
that urge of studios to like look at the Christopher Nolans of the world and be like, well, he did that thing with Batman once, you know, and we want to be the next studio to find that person. I completely agree with you there. But I do think there's also the flip side of that, which is the Marvels of the world hiring independent directors who they know they can control and that aren't going to push back in terms of style and who are just going to be happy to have the job and kind of film what they need them to film. So I, I, you know, it's a give and take. I'm just saying Trank on a personal level to me, rubbed me the wrong way because I felt like his ego was bigger than his, uh, he had cash. And I get that Chronicle was a big hit, but like, it's not like a legendary movie that we're still talking about. You know, I, I mean, I don't know. No, but it was a superhero movie, and I, I get what you're saying right now about the Fantastic Four stuff, but that's not what you were saying earlier. You were talking about him with Star Wars, which is a property that never even happened. Yeah, and I'm, I'm saying he should not have been offered Star Wars. Like, I don't, like, that's, I, I don't see why that's such it, a like, crazy brought idea. you into this, no, I'm not saying it is or it isn't. I'm just saying, like, it, it brought you into this rage, and then this rant about guys like Trevor on stuff. So I just, I guess I didn't know where you were going. Uh, no, but I, I was saying, let's get back to Trank. Let's get back. I to really, Trank. all right. Well, I really don't want to go back to Trank because we're already an hour in and we, we haven't even talked about music yet. We're yeah, we're over, over an hour in. I mean, if you really well, want, if you want to keep talking about Trank, we can keep talking about it, but you know, I do. I want to keep talking about Trank. All right. So, because I think it's interesting. I think it's an interesting conversation. I want to see where you're, what you think about this. So, um, Chronicle is, uh, it's his own thing. It's his own movie that he turns into a huge success. Maybe they should have taken Fantastic Four away and said, dude, do anything else, but you, this clearly should not be the project for you. But they didn't do that. He didn't handle it well. The movie bombs. He goes into director's jail for a couple of years. And for a while, he's not doing anything. And then he gets back into trying to make his own movie. He's not getting offered projects i'm also i'm fine like i said i'm trying to speak more broadly about like the brian singers of the world who have walked off sets for years and keep getting offered big projects i'm not just talking about trank i'm talking about but the, oh god all right what do you <sighs> jesus I, christ phil i'm not okay this is why i didn't want to talk about i'm trying i'm talking about big things i'm saying this article which is you know 30 minutes plus of reading you know or whatever it's a long article to me yes there are two big takeaways were one much of the studios how they dealt with him speaks to how ignorant and stupid some of them are in terms of you just you just have a, a point in your head that you want to get out and you're not letting me discuss the article well no you're saying you don't understand the point i'm making and i guess i'm just you and you're you seem flustered that i'm all over the place and to me i'm not i'm just trying to say that there's two points one is just that trank bothers me as a person like his ego I'm, I'm in the middle of going through the the article itself and breaking down the story because people aren't going to be reading it and you just keep going back to the same point all right well i mean i specifically said i want to keep going so i can get to a point and we can discuss it because i want to know where you're at with it well then i thought you were like making your point all right go ahead keep go make your point i'm not trying to like stop you i guess i just i was not expecting this to like take over i thought this was going to be a quick thing so he's in director's jail he's not getting any offers right He's not getting offers after Fantastic Four. So what you're saying about these guys who keep getting offers to make movies no matter what, at least in terms of Josh Trank, at least in terms of the article that we read to discuss, is not true. It's not what's happening. He goes back into his apartment and decides to work on a script. He does the work, right? He starts working on this Capone movie. 
And he takes a while with it, and he starts pitching it, and he starts working on it, working on it, and he gets Tom Hardy attached. And then when he has his own project that he has written, that he says, I want to direct, that's when he gets another opportunity. He's not getting opportunities left and right. He had to work, and I'm not, I don't want to be the guy who defends Josh Trank. He definitely comes off as an asshole. He totally does. But the reason why I think this article is more about redemption is he seems to have acknowledged his mistakes. He seems to have owned them. He talks in the article about, yes, I was a dick. I, I handled these things the wrong way. And I realized the only way I was going to get another opportunity to do the thing I wanted to do is if I did the work. So he goes and writes his own script. And he goes and searches for funding. And he finds it. And that's what allowed him five years later to come out with this movie Capone which is about to come out next week. It was supposed to come out in theaters. Obviously, with the coronavirus, it's not. And now it's going to be digital. So Fantastic Four comes out in 2015. Capone is about to come out next week. That's a five-year gap, which for a lot of directors is nothing. For some directors, that's a lifetime. Granted, should a guy like him have another movie come out after the mess of Fantastic Four? Maybe, maybe not. If you think, you know, if you're such an asshole and handle things that poorly, you should be banned from the industry... I'm not going to say you're completely wrong for that. But I think if you are going to get a second chance, you have to handle it the way Josh Trank handled it, which is you have to own up to your mistakes and you have to go out and try to make your own thing because he was not given all these opportunities to just make a bunch more movies. That's not true. That's not something that happened with him. So while I get your frustration about all of these white guys who are assholes like Brian Singer keep getting these opportunities, Phil, I totally agree with you. That sucks. They need to change that. But at least in terms of this one specific article that we wanted to talk about, that is not the case. And that's all I wanted to say. That's a lot more than I wanted to say about it. Um, so let's move on. Agree to disagree about the Josh Trank of it all, I suppose. Um, I don't, yeah, I don't, I don't really have, I guess I feel like um, you did hear my points and then told me that, I don't know. I don't know. I don't, I, I guess... It's confusing. I agree with everything you just said. Um, I suppose I just feel like the, uh, yeah, I guess I'm still of that camp. Like, yeah, he still gets to go call up Tom Hardy and get Tom Hardy a script and get like millions of dollars approved to go make a movie. Like it's not, you know, like he went and made a, a you know, a small little indie, you know, that he cared about, you know, and he's still making high budget movies. And I get what you're saying about he wrote it and it's more his project and it's not like just a studio IP that he's, you know, getting handed again. But you know, to me, I'm saying the re the reason I was upset when I read the article, and I wasn't that upset. I was just kind of more rolled my eyes at Josh Trank. I was kind of like, you know, I never having never really thought much about him. He's kind of seems like an asshole. And the fact that he gets to keep making Tom Hardy gangster movies, like after such a calamitous studio venture, it annoyed me that like guys like that were getting offered Star Wars. It, uh, like that's part of it. It also annoyed me that guys like that some some of them obviously not trank i know not specifically trank but some of them still continue to work and get to offered big roles you know you have your like guy richies who can have like three bombs and then he'll go make aladdin and it's all fine again you know or something like that and well i definitely i definitely think if if you make a hit or two early on in your career there are just there's always going to be like that one producer who wants to give you another chance and guy richie definitely had that and josh trank had that so i i definitely think there's something to be said about like if you strike gold early 
there's 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 always going to be that one more person who's going to say, yeah, maybe maybe you can do it again and let me back you there. But I think there's an there's definitely an asshole problem in Hollywood. I you know totally agree with you there, and I, there's definitely an inequality problem in Hollywood. But I don't think it it comes from a guy like Trink. I think to to just say like he should be blacklisted forever is I I just think that goes against the principle of second chances and actually doing the work and making your own opportunities. That's what I think. And I think there, there, there shouldn't be an either or of a guy like Josh Trank should get a second chance if he does the work himself and makes his own movie and makes his own opportunity versus uh, a female director or a, a black or brown director getting more opportunities in Hollywood. I think there's there should be room for both of those things, you know? I, I don't think it should be an either or. All right. I'm, I'm, I really I really am not mad, but we do have to move on, Tom. I really, we got to keep moving. Uh, I, I we're, We've been trapped in here too long, and I need you to fetch the fucking bolt cutters. I've waited many years. Every print I left upon the track has led me here. And next year it'll be clear This was only leading me to that And by that time I hope that you <laughs> Alright, Shamika, let's go. Alright. Alright, Tom. Every once in a while, every few years or so, music critics, music fans, and the general public come together to band behind an album yeah an artist you know your lemonades your your my beautiful dark twisted fantasies your uh yankee hotel foxtrots your uh, your fish big boats yeah sure um your your dams we talked about that it won a pulitzer uh you know you, you have an album and the album of this year so far and i can't you know there might be another you know who knows what beyonce will do but you know occasionally there is an album that everyone kind of comes behind and says this is the album of the year this is a masterpiece this is the defining work of this artist possibly and uh we appear to be in the midst of that with fetch the bolt cutters uh from miss fiona apple and uh tom i've been talking a little bit i've been i've been complaining i need to go drink some water so will you talk a little bit about the fetching some bolt cutters i sure will buddy um fiona apple is an artist who i've uh, personally, I've been a fan of for a very long time, since the 90s when I was in middle school and I saw the music video for Criminal and it was very sexy. Uh, I've always found her to be a very unique, uh, uncompromising artist and I've always appreciated that about her. So whenever she would put out a new album, I would always check it out. I would always dig it. She was never someone that I considered an all-timer. Like I was never... She she just never was on my radar as someone on that level, which I guess in hindsight, I don't really know why, because she has always been super consistent in her the quality of her work. I guess maybe it's just because um, she's been so inconsistent about the the amount of music she puts out. Like she, this was her first album in eight years, and before that it had been another four or five since her last record. So, you know, she's been around for 25 years, but only has like four or five albums. Um, but this comes out, uh, it was 
on my radar a couple weeks before release, which is probably much later in the game than most people. But I just suddenly started seeing uh, a couple of accounts I follow on Instagram of, of like filmmakers and people talking about the new Fiona album record was coming out and they were super excited. And then suddenly it showed up in my feed and I listened to it and thought it was absolutely incredible. And then I feel like immediately everyone was talking about it. I go on Pitchfork. It gets the first 10 on Pitchfork since, what was it, Kanye West uh, in 2010? Yeah, yeah, my beautiful Dark Twisted Fantasy. Yeah, for the first perfect Pitchfork score in a decade, which, you know, say what you will about Pitchfork, but that's still obviously rarefied air. And the album has been out for almost a month now, and I feel like... The more I listen to it, the better it gets. Uh, if there are any songs that I'm not sure about, the more I listen to it, the more I like those extra songs that I weren't already immediately a fan of. And the more I learn about what the album's about, and <laughs> just the more I listen to it, the better it gets. I don't know what else to say. This is one of those albums that I'm, a, I've be- especially lately. I've become a huge fan of listening to full, complete albums as a body of work. I really like that more than just putting a playlist on shuffle or whatever and just listening to random one-off songs. I really like full albums as artistic statements. This is this is something that um, I've always enjoyed, but I've become particularly passionate about lately. So this hit me at the perfect time of here's a brand new release from a major artist maybe putting out her masterpiece from a complete album that front to back just works as a statement. It is not a record you want to put on and just cherry pick a song or two. Whenever I listen to it, I want to start at the beginning and work my way to the end, and that rarely happens, and whenever it does, it's fucking awesome. And this album is just fucking awesome. Right. Um, I think I think what happens is... Uh it's, it's kind of like a, a perfect storm of pop culture being in a certain place and artists being in a certain place. And, you know, this tends to happen when someone's not at the end of their career. The, it's not usually their first album either. It's usually like the coronation of someone. Like, like you said, this is like, okay, you're officially at the top of a mountain now. We're going to put you here for life. And uh, the, I think this album is coming out at a time one where she released it early. It was supposed to come out in June, but because of the quarantine, she decided to drop it early. And I think obviously everyone kind of being stuck at home and being able to listen to it at length, like you, you know, it, it has helped more people hear it. And also the album, I think is very, her, it's her most pro woman, proactive kind of hopeful album. So in a way, I think with the, the me too movement, this album deals a lot with rape and, um, the, her, the way she's been treated by men and women throughout her life and the different relationships she's had to them. And I think the topics she's covering are both serious enough that they're of the moment, they're on people's minds. And I also think that the music itself is so surprising. And I think the, the percussion of it, and I think when you're listening to these songs, they're not exactly, I think like you said, they're not singles. It's not gonna be a big radio hit album. Um, there's nothing on here quite as easy or fun as Criminal, but the songs are so driving and so catchy and there's such kind of colorful touches throughout where a song might just be this pounding piano one moment and then suddenly a, you know, 
baroque piano, uh, baroque violin will come on and start, you know, speeding through something. And then it becomes a slow ballad. And then her voice is doing all this crazy kind of aerobatics. And, you know, it's this, this crazy hodgepodge of influences and style. And it sounds not like anything else in a way. Like there's, you know, I think later in the episode, we're going to talk about other female singer songwriters and other female stars right now. And there's just no one who is making music like this. I think she came out of that era with like Tori Amos and Alanis Morissette and those artists. And I think she's kind of lived past them and been able to kind of transcend them, especially with a work like this. Cause this is only her fifth album. She doesn't release much work. So um, it's an exciting, yeah. it's an exciting album. And yeah, I think it's the right album for the right time. And that's kind of why it's connected with so many people. Yeah. You mentioned Alanis and I always kind of had those two artists linked together um, from my like middle school days, I guess. Shell hates um, as, uh, Shell hates Fiona. I'm not allowed to play Fiona around the house because she's such a diehard Alanis fan uh, that she's like, I really like do not like Fiona Apple. Do not play her around me. She's very fucking serious. It's like we've had discussions about it since this album has come out. Shell has a lot of beliefs about certain things in terms of art that are very stubborn, and I, <laughs> I think I think it's to her detriment ultimately because she's missing out on uh, some good Fiona album records and some good film adaptations of certain novels. So uh, she think, like uh, I, she wants to go see Little Women. We saw that in theater, so she she uh, saw that. Um, yeah, but yeah, but she, I will say. Uh, you you mentioned that this feels like a, a coronation for Fiona Apple, and I think that's a good way to view this and why I think this is resonating so much, because she is an artist that has been around for a while. Like she's lasted um, for multiple generations at this point. Crimin- you know? like Cr- she, Criminal was nineteen ninety six. Yeah, she she was someone who was very popular. She was an MTV music video star when we were kids we're now in our 30s and there are a bunch of kids who are getting into fetch the bolt cutters and i'm sure there are a lot of middle school girls and boys who are listening to this album and getting really blown away by it and not really understanding why yet and i think that's super cool and what it reminds me of is another comp you made was you know there there are those albums that people kind of rally around that come out every now and again. And you mentioned Lemonade as one. And I remember talking to a friend of mine who's a few years younger than me. He's um, in his late 20s now. Um, So he's like five years younger than me. And I remember asking him and a a girl who's kind of in between our ages. She's like 31. I asked both of them. They're both huge huge Beyonce fans. They're part of that camp that just, you know, Beyonce is their goddess. She can do no wrong. And I've always appreciated Beyonce. I like her. I think she's a super talented artist. But part of me has never, I've never been able to kind of like latch on to Beyonce the way so many people have. I'm the same, actually. And I I just kind of asked them one day, they were talking about some, some something about Beyonce. And I said, what is it about her that so many people love so much more than any other artist you know like i get why she's good because i i hear her music so i know she's good but what is it about her that makes her the queen right and they both were like she's just been so good and so consistent our entire lives like she's always been there like ever since they were both little a little boy and a little girl and she was doing it with destiny's child and then she broke off on her own there's been no let up 
And while Fiona Apple has those huge gaps in her career where she wasn't releasing new music, she's always been super consistent and she's just been getting better and better and finding her voice from each album to each album. And, you know, we know a little bit about what this album is. And a lot of it, I know Fiona is quoted as saying that it's about her basically finding her voice and not wanting to shut up anymore and basically wanting to speak her mind. You mentioned the the rape topic that is in this album. I mean, there's one song at one point where she literally says, you raped me in the bed where you're... I, I forget the exact line, but she literally like there's an, yeah, almost an, I know an acapella it's, moment where she's she basically screams like you raped me. You raped me in the same bed your daughter was born in, I think. Yeah, it's some it's something like that, you know, which is can be taken either literally as in you raped me in the bed where your daughter was born, or it could be more of a universal comment on the idea of how a lot of men treat and misuse and abuse women like you you take advantage and defile me in the same bed where i gave birth to our kids you know like there there's just so much of that in this album that is this woman coming into her own as this like woman who's kind of done taking shit that's what this album really feels like and it's super powerful that way and it has um well i want to get to this topic later but uh, i think it it's as of right now at the very least it's the album of the year i think it absolutely has the song of the year um but which is yeah, every for her no oh, i was gonna say what, what what do you think is the song of the year for her oh oh sorry i thought you were saying yes. like for never mind sorry yes for her is an amazing fucking song yes never showing weakness unless it's war season it's the season of the war She's trying to cut the cord. She's tired of playing her knees on the cold, hard floor of facts. Trying to act like the other girl acts. And your strike may have been exact, but you know that you never really go to the mat. You tie everything up ready in the second act. When you know that it didn't go exactly like that, you arrive and drive her like a soft up bat. Like you know you should know, but you don't know where it's at. Like you know you should know, but you don't know where it's at. Like you know you should know. I think that's the, the song of the year right now. Um... If you read up about the song, uh, it seems to be a reaction to the Brett Kavanaugh testimonies while also being a specific story about a girl that Fiona Apple knows who was basically taken advantage of by a male employer. You know, you could totally read Harvey Weinstein into this. You could read Brett Kavanaugh into this. You could just read any guy who was ever in a position of power and was abusive towards a girl. Um it could also just be a universal statement about male power and how it corrupts men. But not only is it catchy as fuck, but it, this is also the song that has that line about um, you rape me in the bed where your daughter was born or whatever. Yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, I think I think that is the the unfortunately the anthem of our times right now. And uh, it's a super powerful song. And I just love it so much. I can't stop listening to the whole album and that song in particular. I really, really love it. Yeah, it's such... The lyrics are incredible. It's one of those... She's kind of 
they're so dense that it's going to go by you quickly on the first few listens. It's not really until you sit down with the lyrics in front of you and kind of parse through them that you'll see a lot of the kind of clever lines and the play on words that she's doing and uh, symbolisms that she's kind of alluding to. It, it's all very dense and kind of fun to kind of that. That's it's rewarding re-listen, as you were saying, like the more you go back to it, uh, the more you'll probably find in it and that's because there's it's it's very dense she takes years to record her albums it's not like she uh sits around and just churns them out you know one a year like some people do just to go on tour she's someone who is spending she recorded this in her house and you can hear her dogs in the background you can hear her screw up takes and laughing at the end of the songs it's this weird mix of this incredibly um progressive production in terms of feeling very natural and lived in, but also very modern and aggressive and kind of punk rock in a weird way. But also, you know, it's very natural. You can hear the dogs. It sounds like she's recording it in a real space. It's not a studio. So it has this kind of really just kind of nice vibe. You can put it on and it feels like you're kind of hanging out with her and this crew of musicians playing drums and while she works shit out. Yeah. The, the final track on I go is basically this, this one verse mantra repeated over and over and over again. And there's one point where she kind of loses the rhythm of it and says like, ah, shit, fuck in the middle of the, the verse. Yeah. And it, it works really well. And it's a really fun, playful moment in the song. So I just thought it was, but it sounds so, uh, so natural that I read about it. And sure enough, um, that was just her losing the rhythm for a second. And instead of redoing it, she, obviously must have played it back. I was like, oh, I like that. That was a mistake, but it felt real. So there are a lot of moments like that where you have those, um, on those albums that you happen to love and play a lot over and over again, that have those weird moments, like in a Beatles album where kind of at the end of a track, you kind of hear, um, them like setting down their instruments and kind of talking to each other as the tape winds down, you know, like those type of moments in albums that you really grow to love where all of like the in-between and the little details that go beyond the structure of the songs themselves, you really kind of grow to love. And this album has a lot of that, which is super interesting because unlike a Beatles where they release an album a year or where Prince has 75,000 hours of music that he recorded, she did take several years to release this album. And that's what she does generally. But at the same time, there's this kind of like, I don't want to say sloppiness, but there's that, I think you, you said it best, like this lived in feeling where you really feel, um, it doesn't feel overproduced. Yeah. No, it's, it's definitely not overproduced. And you feel like really connected to her as an, as an artist. Like it really does feel like she's just bearing her soul and just putting herself out there. And I kind of like the progression that this album goes through as a woman who, you know, in this album, if, if we want to call it a coronation of a, of a female artist kind of coming into her own and saying, I'm not going to take shit anymore and I'm going to speak my mind. The album kind of goes through that progression as well. Phil mentioned to me right before we started recording, you know, um, the first track is called I Want You to Love Me. It's this really beautiful piano ballad about this woman's longing and her vulnerability. And then the, the second track, which is another one of my favorites, is called Shamika. And it's about this girl who Fiona Apple knew when she was a kid. Well, Fiona Apple was being bullied and was this really meek-minded person. This, like, cool kid, Shamika, kind of went up to Fiona and gave her a bit of confidence, you know, and, like, kind of helped her come into her own a little bit as a kid. And I like that that 
track is early on in the album and then it progresses to something like for her which is way later in the album about something that's happened much more recently and late in fiona apple's life i like that it kind of has that progression as well within the album itself yeah i love that the album deals with other women it's not just a kind of a man-hating album it, it deals with her kind of complex relationships with other women and like you said I, I think one of the fun details about the song Shamika is that she said in an interview that she thought Shamika was maybe even a person that she made up like she's like I don't even know if that was like a real person or just a weird memory I had of being young uh I don't know and then she had talked to her teacher and uh, she said, no, Shamika's a real girl that went to our school and that was her name and you remember correctly. And she was like, oh, cool. I did not make that up. Um, so I like that there are songs that are about bullies and girls that were mean to her and this kind of other relationship she has with um, other women. There's a track on there called Ladies and the, where she just says ladies, ladies, ladies a, a bunch, but it has some of the best lyrics of the song. I actually just pulled them up because I think they're so... Um, incredible uh it's verse three on ladies it's um oh yes oh yes oh yes there's a dress in the closet don't get rid of it you look good in it it didn't i didn't fit in it it was never mine it belonged to the ex-wife of another ex of mine she left it behind with a note one line it said i don't know if i'm coming across but i'm really trying she was very kind and it's this like you'd have to go back and read it and kind of parse through it all but it's this a woman who has a dress that was never hers and she's passing it along to the next partner of this man and saying like, it, it's, it never belonged to me. It never fit me right. Maybe it'll fit you. And she's being kind. And it's kind of this like gesture of passing along another man. And there's kind of this, the silent relationship between those women who are connected by a third party um, that, and they may never even meet each other, but they're connected in that way. And I just find the album so fascinating and so rich and musically, sonically production wise, her voice, it's all, it's just, it's a masterpiece. Yeah, and I think even, you know, the so the line Fetch the Bolt Cutters, which is uh, the title of the album and also the title of one of the tracks in the album, track three of the album. So I don't know if you know, do you know where that line comes from? I do, yes. Yeah, it's inspired by a scene in the, the amazing show, by the way, for people who haven't watched it. I know a couple people, uh, friends of mine who listen to this podcast, you have seen it and love it. But for those who don't, just consider that extra recommendation to go watch The Fall. I believe it's still on Netflix in the U.S. I hope it is. Yeah. Um, but it's a, poli- it's a police procedural starring uh, Gillian Anderson of The X-Files, or Gillian Anderson of The X-Files. Um, she's chasing down a serial killer. And at one point, her character says to fetch the bolt cutters, to the police in order to release a girl who has been tortured so it's about women being abused and other women coming to her aid and fiona apple has also said i'm just going to read this quote from an article much like the whole record the message in the song is to quote fetch the fucking bolt cutters and get yourself out of the situation that you're in whatever it is that you don't like about it So the song talks about Fiona's relationship with her self-image and how she was poorly judged in her early career, which also goes back to a song like Shamika when she's a kid, and how she eventually finds her own voice and feels that she doesn't need to please the media anymore or anyone else. This is her response, like, hey, I'm here, this is me, take it or leave it. It's all about this idea of a woman coming into her own, embracing herself and her self-image, not caring what other people think about it, but also realizing that there are plenty of others who were like her, who were in harm's way or who were 
beaten down or didn't feel good about themselves. And she's basically using this album as a personal statement of self-assurance and self-worth and also saying, like, come along with me. We got each other's back, ladies. We, we got this. We're good. We're good. It's fucking awesome. Vegetable bolt cutters. I've been in here too long. Vegetable bolt cutters. I've been in here too long. Yeah, and the reason I related so much to it was because I was like 30 minutes ago in this really tense conversation and I was feeling quite tortured, so I had to fetch the bolt cutters as well uh, to get out of there. Yeah, no, I, I was, it, it was tough because I, the, I was in a similar situation where I was just talking to a fucking moron and I was like, get me out of here. You were talking to Josh Trank? Yeah. <laughs> I was actually, yeah, we called them. So I'm not, I'm, I'm I, I was, you know, I, I think it's good uh, when we fight because we agree on so much. No, I'd rather, so, I, I'm happy with a fight. I, I'm, I'm always fine with a fight. Uh, you know, I was looking back at the podcast episodes and there was one, oh my God, was it about Jurassic World? There was. Oh yeah, I hated the second one. I was like, this movie's dog shit. And you were like, come on, man, don't go so hard on it. I was like, Tom, quit, yeah, quit being I, I so mean, forgiving. I wasn't calling it great. Yeah. But I, yeah, I, there, was a, there was a title in a previous episode of How's That Day where it says, we fight over Jurassic World Part 2 or something like that. So it's funny yeah. that we got back. We also that. fought over Hush at some point because I thought Hush sucked. And, yes. Uh, and that. That's still insane. But yeah, I mean... It's insane that you like that shitty horror movie. But anyway. That's a good horror movie. Anyway, all right. Really quick, before we head out, let let me um, hear... What's your top two or three favorite tracks off the album uh, before we move on? Uh, Definitely Shamika. Definitely um, For Her, which to me, like I said, Song of the Year. Uh, I really like I Want You to Love Me. I think musically... That has just a really great piano melody in it that I really love. Um, I think the song Drum Set is a very good... It's a very good um, emotional song about feeling vulnerable and feeling... It's like it's like feeling like you've been broken up, but it's really about uh, being in a fight with one of her bandmates and kind of taking uh, this misunderstanding the completely wrong way um, with her drummer that's like the background to the story but it's a really vulnerable emotional song and i also really like i mean i like everything but i also if i were to highlight one more the song under the table i think musically is just kick-ass i think it's a really really great song cool my uh, it's weird i was waiting for you to mention my two but you didn't uh my two probably biggest ones like you i love the entire album but i find myself returning often to relay and heavy balloon those are my kind of big ones I spread it like strawberries Oh, yeah, I like both of those as well, especially Heavy Balloon. I think Heavy Balloon is also crazy. Yeah, she somehow makes spreading, like, strawberries sound really, like, angry, and I don't know why. But, you know, I'm like, yeah, I fucking spread, like, strawberries, too. I don't know. Well, she she kind of has this crack in her voice sometimes. Yeah, she's got a real... makes cr- her sound really angry. Really, really angry sometimes. More angry than I think she means to. But she it's, it's, it's weird because it's, like, it's such a minor lilt in her voice but it has such a like a huge effect yeah when she uses well it. according to shell that 
kind of anger in her voice is what really turned Shell off. She always kind of considered her the like emo goth bitch version of Alanis Morissette or something. Like I think she views Alanis as kind of a being a bit more like earthy and enlightened and hippie-ish and happy. And I was like, ah, you know. Yeah, uh, Alanis was not angry. Yeah, yeah. Well, the first, well, the first <laughs> album. Yeah, I think she's like. Yeah, she Shell would argue that after uh, Jack or Jagged Little Pill that she kind of like wizened and matured and got older and wasn't as mad at men anymore and such. But like uh, Fiona, I think from her perspective, uh, keep in mind, Shell has not heard anything from Fiona Appleson's criminals. This is all just Shell's like uh, point of view, why she's avoided her. But she seems to really hate Fiona's voice. Like even when she doesn't know that it's Fiona Apple, she'll walk in and be like, what are you listening to? This is awful. Like every time. And I'm like, it's Fiona Apple. She's like, ugh. I hate it every time. And she, same with Bruce, man. She really just hates Bruce Springsteen's voice so much. Like I can barely play him around her without her just like being like, this makes my fucking stomach turn. That's unfortunate. Yeah, I know, especially because the boss is my favorite. Um, Shell has very bad taste. Yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> Shell's great. Uh, yeah, um, I love her. Honey. She's probably going to listen to this and whatever. And we're in quarantine, so when she hears it, she's going to like walk into the other room and fucking kick me or something. But anyway. Spank the shit out of you. Spank my nothing. Um, uh, uh, yeah. We wanted to yeah, talk, let's about talk about, about Let's talk about music. some other music. Uh, I was about to. Yeah. yeah uh, I was going to make some I know sex we, joke, but. I'm glad you didn't. That's why I tried to move on. I know we are starting to run a little long. We're, we're at about an hour and a half. Um, so we don't have to go into too much if you don't want to. If you want, I can just name a couple albums and uh, give you the titles of a couple tracks if you just want to play, like insert, you know, 30 seconds of them or something like that. Well, I, I don't I, know how you, how you want to do it. How about we just, uh, I mean, yeah, we're going to recommend a few albums and some tracks that we think everyone should look out for, especially if you're stuck in quarantine right now. There's, um, unfortunately, you know, uh, there is plenty of art out there to kind of immerse yourself in. It's been an interesting year. I don't know. It hasn't, there's been like the Fiona Apple, but I don't know that I've had, I have like a solid top five that I really like, but everything else I'm kind of like, yeah, this seems good for now, but I'd be curious if it stuck around by the end of the year type feelings, you know? Um, mm -hmm. But that said, um, the, I, I think it's been an interesting year in that I continue to move almost not exclusively, but it feels like exclusively to female artists. It feels like every new pop artist or indie rock band or singer songwriter are all like females right now. I it really, I'm not even like purposely trying. It just seems like that's where the energy is at everywhere. I don't know if that's just my like perception, but it just seems like there's been more female led bands reaching popularity than ever at this point. Like I look at my top 10 and I'm like eight of these are women. Yeah, maybe. I know um, I, I have a lot of albums that I've liked and there are there are a good handful that I'm I'm really bullish on. But I, I think I have a top four that I, I'm pretty confident in saying like these will be around at the end of the year and three of them are, are female artists. So cool. I totally agree. All right. So with that in mind, uh, and we're going to keep highlighting stuff throughout the year, like at the end of episodes and stuff. So this is not the last you'll hear of our music Rex. We'll go into it uh, more deeply, but Tom, tell me some of your favorite tracks that you want some other people to look into at least one. And then I'll throw one out there and we'll just kind of go back and forth for a real quick bit. Okay. So um, I've really, 
I'd say my my number four album of the year uh, is by this band called Porridge Radio. Um, they're this female-led rock band, and they kind of have this like maybe um, it, it's definitely rock music, but it has kind of a an ambient like Brian Eno vibe to a lot of the music. Yeah, uh, where it gets it gets spacey, not in not in a mellow way, like very much in a rock and roll kind of way. But um, yeah, they have this kind of like earthy uh, trance-like quality. Like it, it, the music puts me in a very certain type of mood. They, there's this album that came out this year called Every Bad. Um, I had never heard of Portage Radio before this album. I just saw that it was getting some pretty good reviews, so I decided to listen to it, and I was a big fan. Uh, the song I would highlight is a song called Lilac. L-A-L-I-L-A-C, Lilac, from Every Bad. Uh, Phil will put in some of that music right now. No, I won't. Yeah, you will. We'll see. And I don't know how to find A way to make us comfortable I want you to be so that's my first recommendation um yeah every bad i think the whole album if you if you dig that song uh listen to the whole thing because it's all like that and it's all good cool my uh outside of um listening to sad fiona apple talk about rape i've also been dancing to dua lupa um you know just having a grand old time her album is uh, a pretty big hit right now i think most people have probably heard um uh i can't believe i'm blanking on the name don't start now uh her big hit from the album but if you go into the full album which is called future nostalgia uh there's a lot of great just high energy dance tracks and uh, pop songs and you know if you're into that kind of thing it's very much in that like Carly Rae Jepsen, not quite as like poppy as that, a little bit darker, more in the like Carly Rae Jepsen meets Lord kind of thing. You have to like pop music, but I like pop music quite a bit, and I like this album quite a bit. It's Future Nostalgia. The song I would highlight from it is called Cool. want to say um dua lipa is also one of my favorite albums this year i'm a big fan fuck yeah so that's a good choice uh i will stay uh with the female artist right now and then i'll move on to my uh my favorite male record of the year i guess but my number three album right now is called heavy light by the band u.s girls this is another new discovery for me um this album is super interesting. Uh, I'm trying to pull it up right now so I can find the particular song I want to talk about. But anyway, yeah, it's an album called Heavy Light. Um, it's another uh, rock album, but it has these weird interludes. Um, tracks called Advice to Teenage Self. Uh, 
the color of your childhood bedroom, the most hurtful thing. And it's like this, it becomes this weird montage of a bunch of different people talking at once about the topic of the track. You know, so like advice to teenage self, it becomes a bunch of different people, you know, several girls, a guy or two saying, like, what would I say to my teenage self, blah, blah, blah. Yes. The color of your childhood bedroom. This is what my childhood bedroom was like, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And then the music kind of kind of drifts in and out from there. But the songs are all very short, very catchy um, music. I I can't pinpoint exactly why I like it so much other than I just find it I, I find it very catchy. I obviously very much like the music. And like Fiona Apple, it's an album that I really like listening to front to back um, because it puts me in a very particular mood. And if I were to um, pick a particular track, I would probably go with uh, State House. It's a man's world or... Maybe Born to Lose, actually. Let's let's choose Born to Lose, so we'll play some of that. Cool. Cause something's wrong with you, then you can't buy the land. that's what they say. Reach out, close your eyes and open your head. Take it, take it, take a quick hit into your head. Better you take two and do it again. Quickly get sick of but we know what to do. Tell you little lies and you'll tell us the truth. Uh, yeah, I actually I listened to this album too, and I the my takeaway from it was probably what you said, um, like that it works best as an album. I don't know that there were individual tracks that really stood out to me, but I definitely had it on as kind of like a vibe that was just kind of nice to have on uh, while I was you know sitting on the computer just listening to music, going about my day. And um, I remember the the track Woodstock '99 stood out to me. I liked that one. Um, yeah, I like that one too. I almost picked that actually. Okay, cool. Um, uh, for my next pick, I'm gonna go with since I've been talking about boy, uh, girls, I'm gonna talk about a boy as well. Um, I'm gonna talk about Happiness, which is a very small indie band that I don't think many people know about. Uh, it's Happiness with a Y, and if I had to describe their sound, it's Elliot Smith probably with crunch, crunchier guitars and a lot of reverb. Um, so it's this very kind of mid tempo to slow songs that will then just have like a really crunchy guitar solo. And, um, I, they had, a it's, it's a multi-instrumental, multi-instrument, I can't fucking say it, multi-instrumentalist, uh, singer, uh, guitarist, and then a, uh, drag queen drummer. And they, uh, have, I liked their last album and, uh, I, Spotify was recommending their new tracks and literally their new album came out. Uh, I believe either, uh, yeah, last week. I'm sorry, I was thinking, I forgot what day it was. It came out last week, It's so it just came out. It's still relatively fresh to me. Um, and yeah, it's great. If you're really into like Elliot Smith and that kind of like, this is probably the most shoegazy kind of like indie band that I would probably recommend. I, I don't really like that. Mm-hmm. I, it's not that, but it's probably the closest to that um, that I would uh, have. But anyway, I would uh, recommend the track uh, it's the last track on the album. It's called Seeing Eye Dog. It's a fucking banger. I'll play a little bit of it. Um, but it's 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 great. Okay. 
Well, I had never heard that before, but I really liked what you just played there. That was great. Yeah, it was it was great. I'm glad you liked it. Thank you very much. Uh, my number two album of the year, and this is, I mean, this is like the the other two albums that I mentioned. I'm a big fan of, and Fiona is the number one. To spoil that, obviously, I think that was obvious. But this is like the clear number two right now. Oh man, I'm really nervous. This is by an artist named Thunder. Okay, thank God. That's not what I'm, I'm curious. What I mentioned that you dislike so much, but oh. we'll talk about it after because this is the last thing I want to mention. Yes, I like Thundercat. Um, I'm fine with Thundercat. Th- Thundercat is fucking awesome. He's a, a really talented bassist uh, who's worked with a bunch of really great, interesting artists. Um, he most notably maybe won a Grammy for working with Kendrick Lamar on the track "These Walls" from uh, "Good Kid, Mad City." Uh, he's also worked with Erica Badu, Flying Lotus, um, but he he had this album that came out a couple years ago called Drunk, which is a really fun, playful album. He mixes a lot of different genres. It's a lot of like, you know, each track is like 20, 20 tracks or something, but they're all two, two and a half, three minutes long. Um, it's a lot of like funk, jazz, fusion, hip hop. He blends a lot of different elements, but he's just a super talented instrumentalist and um i don't know there's not even a particular track i want to mention just go listen to his album called it is what it is it came out this year it's his latest album also listen to drunk from 2017 just put him on i guarantee you'll have a blast listening to thundercat his his music kicks ass and i guess if you really want to play something let's go ahead and play uh his most popular song from the album it's called dragon ball durag Yeah, he. Uh, I saw him in concert last year because uh, he was one of the opening acts for that Dave Chappelle Dayton Gem City Shine concert. That uh, oh, nice. Yeah, so he showed up, and I felt bad because Thundercat was one of those artists. Um, Tayana Taylor was probably one of the other bigger ones. Who, if you're people like you and me who are big music nerds, like we're like, yeah, fuck yeah, Thundercats here. And I, but I could look around and just see all these white people around who were just like waiting to see. Uh, you know, Lady Gaga or whoever it was rumored to be appearing later that day. And they were just like, who the fuck is this Thundercat guy playing bass up there? And I was, I was having a great time. I was happy as hell to see him, but I could tell that unfortunately not a lot of people knew who he was at that concert. Was that the, uh, the thing you went to where Kanye showed up? Well, he did Sunday service that morning uh, at a separate uh, right. location, but yes, it was that same day. And I didn't, uh, the Kanye thing was in, like bright early in the morning and before I even got to work, he was he had already like started it, so I missed it. I was not able to get to the Kanye Sunday service, um, but that's okay. I watched the whole thing. It was it all streamed and it was recorded, so I saw it. Um, but anyway, yeah, past Thundercat, the the artist I was concerned that you were going to bring up, not because I hate the artist so much, but I just really didn't like the album was Childish Gambino. I was. Um, I was interesting. Yeah, I just like I I, I tried because you mentioned that you liked the album, so I was like, oh, I'm gonna give it another try. Like the first uh, the first listen didn't really 
click for me for a variety of reasons. And then I put it on again and I was like, nope, still bored. Just don't care about this one. And uh, it's okay. Yeah. Yeah. That's all. That's, that's fair. All. Yeah. It just kind of bored me. I mean, it's definitely not his tightest album. It definitely, it feels, uh, very loose. Um, I, I don't know if I like the whole album cause it's very long. It's a lot of like super long tracks. It feels like to me, like him fucking around in the studio. That's, it seems like outtakes from the studio. I think that's kind of my main critique is that it's long and it feels unfinished, like studio messing around. See, I've, I've heard that from other people as well. And while on one level, I do get that part of me wonders if a lot of people are saying that because of the, the name of the album and the title tracks, like, um, you know, the album is just called three fifteen twenty, which I guess was the day he f- either finished it or released it. And then basically each track with one or two exceptions are basically just the time code of when they start in the album, like the runtime of the album. Yeah. So like one album, one track is called 42, 26 or something. Cause it starts at 42 and 26 seconds into the album. Um, so I wonder if it feels if a lot of people um, are maybe even unconsciously or subconsciously uh, having that opinion about it, or if that's kind of confirming their opinion about it, because it seems like he didn't really bother to name anything. Um, while, while at the same time also having, uh, for sure, a, a, a looser feel, and maybe he's just dicking around a lot. And even if that's the case, I don't know, man. Uh, while as a whole album... Uh, it doesn't work on quite the same level as some of the favorites I've mentioned. There are a lot of tracks in there that I just think are great. Like, just so catchy and so fun to listen to. So while it's not his best, definitely not his tightest album, I definitely like it, and I'm a big fan. Yeah, I mean, I, I like him. and I, I think Awaken My Love is a fucking incredible album. Um, and obviously, this is he's trying different things with each album and trying not to emphasize rap as much. And, you know, he's trying to do things, and I totally appreciate that. But, I'm yeah, I just pulled it up, and it's like, Track three is six minutes. Track four is six and a half minutes. Track five is five minutes. Track six is eight minutes. Like they're just really long tracks. And I think I kind of, maybe there is that like desire for an easy single or something. And I just need to kind of readjust my expectations. But the first couple listens, it has not clicked. Maybe it will in the future. I don't know. So I first listened to that album. Uh, you know, I'm a big walking reader. I like to go on walks and read books. And I listen to music while I do that usually. And... Um, that was the first time I played this. I'm like, you know, I know this is just a bunch of like long tracks. Basically, let me just put this on as kind of background reading music. And I had to stop reading because I was really digging a lot of what he was doing. And I've just listened to the album a bunch of times that way. So maybe, I don't know, maybe it works best as maybe not completely background music, but kind of like a blend of, you know, music you're kind of half listening to while you're doing other shit. Um, because, I don't know, man, it's super, like, the tracks are super catchy and good. And I feel like if he doesn't, I feel like maybe someone is eventually going to do something with a lot of the music that's in that record and maybe do something great with it. Or he'll come back to it down the road, maybe, and, like, tighten it up and use it for some tighter tracks that he's going to release. I don't, I don't know. I feel like... I feel like we're not done with that record in particular. Maybe. I also thought he was like retiring the Childish Gambino name. I guess he gave up on that. Um, I thought he was too. Yeah, but anyway. um, All right. Uh, Just to like throw out some really quick highlights as we wrap up. um, Haley Williams released a new album this week that I thought was pretty fun. Um, My Girls and the Group Haim. 
had an album that was supposed to come out but has been delayed because of the coronavirus, which a number of other groups have delayed albums. Not everyone's released them early like Fiona did. Some people, because they had major tours planned and other promotional things, they've just kind of decided to push back the releases for several months in some cases and indefinitely in others. Um, you know, like they're, they're, I think, pushing theirs back just several months before they release the full thing. But, uh, you know, that's happened to a few artists. Their music has not been exempt from the coronavirus. Um, but yeah, I, I wanted to mention Waxahachie has a great album. Um, if you like Car Seat Headrest, they're a great indie band. Um, I would mention uh, The Weeknd. I, I could not find a lot of hip-hop that I liked. Um, he has a couple good tracks. It's not my favorite album, but I think there are some bangers on there. Um, Bob Dylan has released some fucking crazy tracks this year. I don't know if you've listened to those two. Um, uh, the What is it, like the 17-minute JFK track or something? There's an 18-minute song about like the the chronicles the history of the JFK assassination and like the death of the sixties yeah. and stuff. And he also, re- I have, I have listened to that. He released another one called, um, I contain multitudes. Uh, yes. and I fucking loved it. Cause like it's lyrics, like I can paint portraits and I can paint nudes. I contain multitudes <laughs> and I could just listen to him do that shit all day. And, um, also, Aubrey Sellers is a great singer-songwriter who I... Uh, ha- she has probably one of my favorite tracks of the year called "Has uh, Haven't Even Kissed Me Yet. And uh, that's a wonderful romantic song that I adore. We are in your room talking trash About all the things that she did behind your back I'm Um, and yeah, there's a there's Bonnie Light Horseman um, and some other ones. Uh, yeah, that's it. That's good. I, uh, I'll recommend a couple as well. Tame Impala has a new album out, which is pretty good. Uh, e. Toomer has a really good album called Heaven to a Tortured Mind. In terms of uh, good hip-hop, Kenny Siegel has a really fun album called uh, Ajai, A-J-A-I. And it's this narrative album uh, that's really fun and playful. Uh, he he kind of has this like um, this uh, I'm blanking on the word, but like oh like a, almost like a beat poetry delivery. Like it's very uh, it's not quite sing songy as a lot of hip hop is. Yeah. But I really really enjoyed that album. Kenny Siegel's album is good. Uh, another pretty good. Um, uh, hip hop album Boldy James and the Alchemist The Price of Tea in China is pretty interesting Jay Electronica finally came out with his first album A Written Testimony that's not bad um, Mad Lib and Oh No came out with an album called The Professionals this year which is definitely worth checking out because it's Mad Lib and I, Mad yeah. Lib's the shit I've not heard that I've actually I've listened to a lot of Mad Lib lately so I'm surprised I haven't like just found that by accident yeah, well, it's it's listed under the professionals. I mean, I think um, you could find it yeah. in, in Mad Lib if you Spotify him, but if you if you search in Spotify the professionals, you'll find the album there. And uh, the one last thing I want to recommend. Um, so the the great musician Gil Scott Heron, I think his final album called came out. In, <clears throat> excuse me, came out in 2010 called "I'm New Here." Um, this artist Micaiah McCraven came out with an album this year called "We're New Again." a reimagining and it's credited to him and Gil. 
Uh, and it's basically a reworking of Gil's 2010 album. Uh, Micaiah is this uh, jazz drummer percussionist, and he reworks the order of a lot of tracks and just remixes them. So it's it's very hip hop and jazz influenced, um, while maintaining you know the the skeleton of Gil's 2010 album. Uh, I thought that was a super interesting album. I don't know how to rank it necessarily, like in terms of a 2010 album. It's a new release in terms of uh, a lot of the music is is new and different from the original album, but it's 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 like an adaptation album, you know. I have added um, it to my list. I will listen to it because that sounds right up my alley. Yeah, it's definitely worth listening to, especially if you compare it to Gill's 2010 album. And there's an also. Uh, there's an also there's also a 2011 album let me pull it up really quickly i have my spotify open so uh yeah so gill's album is called i'm new here came out in 2010 in 2011 jamie xx remixed that album uh in 2011 and put out with something called we're new here which is credited to Jamie XX and Gil Scott Heron, which is more like a dance remix of the I'm New Here album, which is very interesting. And then, uh, like I said, Micaiah McCraven in this year, 2020, renamed it We're New Again, a reimagining by Micaiah McCraven. So there are three different versions, if you include the original, of Gil Scott Heron's, I believe, his final uh, fully finished album. Um, so if you listen to those three kind of back to back to back, like I did earlier this week, it's a super interesting exercise in how different artists kind of rework music that inspires them and how different genres work with, uh, you know, the same set of lyrics and how that may change the message of a particular song. It's a, it's really cool. It was a really cool kind of a musical experiment I did earlier this week. So I would highly recommend that. Cool. Um, yeah. I did. Oh, and last, lastly, sorry. Yeah. Uh, The album isn't great, but it's only 25 minutes, so check it out. Huey Lewis and the News put out their first album in over 25 years, randomly. An album called Weather. It's a new release from 2020. It's seven tracks, 26 minutes long. But, I mean, this guy has several great, truly great 80s albums, in my opinion. And so the fact that Huey Lewis and the News came back and released a new album for the first time in a very, very long time. I found exciting. I listened to it. It's, it's 26 minutes. Give it a shot. Uh, I'm, I guess I'm going to have to read more about that, only because I thought I saw a news report that he had like some kind of throat cancer or something and like couldn't sing anymore and like wasn't allowed to go on tour. No, he, he, has, uh, he has some hearing problems. Oh, oh. Does he have Meniere's yeah. He has Meniere's disease. Um, I, be- I believe so, yeah. Is- so he can't tour because he can't hear like his inner ear and in the monitors. But yeah. I think he was... he uh, From what I heard, he recorded a lot of this record before that happened. Ah, well... Um, and then the release got delayed. Ah, um, Ryan Adams, you know, my old... My old uh, singer songwriter bestie uh he has the same thing and he had to stop touring for several years and he basically uh when he came back only did acoustic tours for a couple rounds because he couldn't be around the full setup of a of a live band he could only handle the small guitar and the piano uh so he had to kind of like readjust his health and everything based on that but yeah because he i guess for years was doing the flashing lights at shows and that made it everything worse so he was 
having migraines and headaches and all kinds of health issues that he had no idea was related to like his his hearing and the what was going on to in his brain so it's definitely a, a very strange disease and uh, yeah you know it, it definitely fucks with live performers it can really hurt you unfortunately huey has it as well and if you are a huey fan like i am and want to check that album out there's also a really good podcast um scott ackerman of comedy bang bang fame and adam scott the actor have a podcast they've been doing for years on and off uh, the first iteration was called You Talking U2 to Me, where they break down all of U2's albums. Then they did an REM one called You Talking REM Re Me, which I've talked about. I went on a huge REM binge earlier this year and loved it. They're now one of my favorite bands ever. They did a one-off episode called Yui Talking Huey Tui Me with guests Huey Lewis and Jimmy Kimmel, who is apparently a Huey Lewis superfan. It came out a couple months ago, right around the release of this album, which is how I heard about it. It's an amazing podcast episode. It's like a two-hour interview with Huey Lewis, Jimmy Kimmel, this podcast king, Scott Ackerman, and the actor Adam Scott, who's a big music fan. The four of them have great chemistry. Huey Lewis is an awesome interview subject. He's super open and really funny and still totally with it. It's really, really great. I highly recommend people listen to that. Cool. I have not heard that, but that sounds very nice and pleasant. And uh, you, you would really enjoy it, Phil. Yeah, I really I, think I, it about. sounds right up my alley. Um, is that your recommendation? Do you have anything else you want to throw out there for people? I mean, the second half of this uh, episode has been a bunch of recommendations. But is there any like uh, anything else you want to throw out there before we wrap? No, nope. sorry, I sorry I made us go long. That's my fault. But I enjoyed arguing. No, no, we we made up for time. Uh, like I said, you know, we're we're crossing the two hour mark, but. Um, that's all right. Like I said, as long as we don't hit two and a half, that's when I start getting very concerned. We're, we're going to release shorter episodes too. Yeah, we promise. We're going to try. <laughs> we talk, we, we only get to talk, you know, every day. So, you know, when we have this time on the microphone, we obviously have to talk even longer. We don't do our 7 PM daily check-ins like they did on the parks and rec episode. We do not do that. No. Um, that, uh, never mind. I was going to make fun of the show again, but I won't. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to be like, yeah, that stupid shitty episode of Parks and Rec that no one liked. But uh, yeah, it was it was it was a very cute idea. I loved seeing everybody. I wish it was funnier. Uh, Josh Trank's a piece of shit. Frankenstein's cool. Scream 5 can't wait. Uh, Fetch Bolt Cutter's masterpiece. That's it, right? Yes. Scream 5. <laughs> Scream 5 can't wait. Most the board. Yeah, way. yeah, yeah. U.S. Girls got Thundercat Porridge Radio. Okay, cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. cool. Um, so that's that's our week. Um, what are we doing next week, Tom? I don't even know. I have to pull it up. Um, is anything coming up? Well, in, in two episodes, not next episode, but in two episodes, we will wrap up the Last Dance documentary, which... Uh, we discussed um, an episode ago. I think next week it's time to officially start the Neon Genesis Evangelion rewatch, or not rewatch, first time watch. Um, I think that should be our big subject. Well, and then never mind. I was gonna yes, say, we, we can talk off mic. I was going to say I thought uh, those were kind of what I was suggesting might be the nice separate, shorter episodes where those are just like their own thing, kind of. And I don't know, but we can talk about it. Tell me what you're thinking. Okay, that's true. We can talk about it. Maybe maybe next week we can uh, do an episode where we start that series and maybe talk a little bit about our experience with anime. Sure. Mizaki films, um, Akira, Ghost in the Shell, stuff like that. I've actually been uh, watching some anime separately from the Neon Genesis stuff we're planning on doing. So 
I don't know. That's an option. Otherwise, if people have any suggestions, feel free to hit us up. Yeah, I um, I, I would say I don't know what movies are coming out. I don't think you want to talk about Becoming with Michelle Obama by any chance, do you? Um, I don't. No, I, I mean, I would, but... I don't. Um, I'm sure it's fine. I'm sure it's very nice. And I'm, not, I'm not feeling political right now, man. We're in a pandemic. It's not fun to talk about politics anymore. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think they're trying to be like positive and uplifting and stuff. But yeah, you're like, eh, it's kind of like Star Wars, I guess. I'm just kind of over it all right now. And I just want to be left alone. Um, yeah, we don't we don't really need to look at the Obamas and be like, oh, it would have been nice if they were in charge of this pandemic. That would have been great. Um, I forget what I was just going to look something up about a movie release, but I don't remember. Um, well, we, we have talked in the past. I mean, a big reason why we're doing Neon Genesis is I thought it would be cool while we're stuck at home to hit some blind spots. We can maybe think of a blind spot or two movies to watch or, uh, you know, we can just do a catching up episode or talk about whatever. But I mean, Neon Genesis is something we've been wanting to do. I think it makes sense to start there if we don't have any better idea. Cool. But we can also discuss this off mic. Yeah, yeah, we'll discuss it. All. We've talked long enough. Um, my only, yeah. my only recommendation besides um, uh, the music we threw out there was it's available on Amazon Prime right now. Uh, it's called The Assistant. Um, it's a very good, very uh, somber look at the day in the life of basically Harvey Weinstein's personal assistant who works in the office, and you never see the Harvey Weinstein's char- character's face. You never, she never has. Uh, she's not like raped by him or anything crazy like that. But you, by the end of the film, get a very clear sense of what it's like to work in an abusive work environment, to work for men, to feel isolated in a male dominated environment. If you're a woman, especially like a physically small woman or, you know, viewed as meek by these men in some way or fragile. Uh, and it's just about this woman and it's very kind of small scale. And if, but if you pay attention to the details, you'll see exactly how, these awful things happen under people's noses all the time, or I should say not under people's noses, but go casually unremarked upon as if they are normal everyday behavior that is accepted. And uh, yeah, it's a very interesting watch. It's on Amazon prime right now. You can rent it. Uh, It's one of my favorites of the year. Highly recommend it. And I think that's, uh, yeah, yeah. that's one I wanted to watch. So everybody watch that. And then uh, while you're frustrated afterwards, listen to Fiona and get your frustration out. Yeah, and then go watch the abortion drama I recommended last week, um, and you'll just be in a great mood. Uh, yeah, totally. Well, that's the show for this week. <laughs> uh, it's been a real, it's been a real ride this episode, I think, Tom. Um, yeah, it was. It was a great journey. I enjoyed it. Yeah. Uh, well, that's that's the journey for this week. Uh, if you want to go on the journey again, uh, subscribe, rate, review the show. Every one of those helps out. Uh, thank you, Zach Pitts, for the theme music. And it still makes me feel excited every time I hear it because I'm like, wow, we have theme music. And, yeah, Zach, you're the man. Uh, yeah, and please check out your Facebook page. Leave us some comments. Uh, let us know what you think. I don't think there's going to be a Facebook page anymore because I fucking hate Facebook. Um, I'm just reading it from a script now and talking. Yeah, I don't get rid of it. I, I've, I haven't been on Facebook in a very long time. So if anything's happening over there, I'm not. Yeah, I'm yeah, not no, yeah. Scrap, scrap that last sentence. Fuck Facebook. Um, check us out on YouTube. Obviously, YouTube's a reputable website with no problems whatsoever. Uh, you can check them out. And uh, Tom, <laughs> tell them where to find you online. Bindi, Tom Bindi on Instagram. Big Fat Bond on Twitter. Nice. I am Phil Wiedenhaft. You can find me on Twitter at Phil Wiedenhaft. And that's it. That's the show for this week. Tom, we'll be talking maybe some anime next week. We'll see what other 
weird news <laughs> will drop. We can uh, see what else happens. Like, you know, uh, I was going to recommend Grimes' new album this week, but uh, then she had a child with Elon Musk and named it a weird name, and it really made me not want to listen to her album this week because it was like, ah, I'm, I'm good on you right now. Yeah, I've listened to it. It's it's hit or miss, but I dig some of it. I'll check it out. But yeah, that's, you know, the strange things happening this week. We could talk about naming children weird names uh, and how to pronounce it and stuff like that. Oh, uh, everybody read The Wind-Up Bird Chronicle. It's a book I just finished this week. It's a it's an it's a masterpiece. That's it. I'm done. I'm done talking. Weird. I'm done. All right. I'm going to I'm going to push the stop button so that we can stop this episode. Yes, we have to stop. Bye, everybody. We love you very much. All right. Bye.